This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things Mecca, be it giant or otherwise. Happy Father's Day, everyone. We're recording this auspiciously on Father's Day. Shoutouts to all my fellow fathers out there. My daughter went around all day saying, it's my birthday, uh, missing the point of the day completely. <laughs> PMC, how are you? You're recording from a new location today. I am recording. Well, this is not a new location. We did, we did feature this location before. Oh, b- during our core one retrospective for uh for uh witch for mercury but oh I, yeah I am, I am once again by the ocean uh so if you know if the if the seas rise too quickly or australia gets destroyed i will be in trouble <laughs> now if you didn't read the title for this episode we are this is our follow-up episode to our last gunbuster history episode this is the part two of that two-part series. Last episode, we covered the founding of Gynax, diving deep into the respective histories of all the founders. On today's episode, we'll be, of course, talking about the production of Gunbuster, as well as some Gynax history thrown into the mix uh, leading up to the production of Gunbuster. Basically, what Gun- uh, what Gynax was up to post-Royal Space Force, but before the start of Gu- Gunbuster's production in 1988. And we have our Excellent returning guest on this episode, Rex Neighbors the Third and Coop Bicknell. How are both of you? I am feeling real spicy today. We're in the middle of, uh, I think it was 112 degrees. Oh boy! Oh no! It's right uh, now here in uh, Houston, Texas, and uh, it's been a fun weekend. <laughs> it's been unusually mild uh, in the Northeast, so my heart goes out to you, Rex. Yeah, it's been kind of warm uh, over here in Michigan, too. It's been like mid-80s most of the weekend, but it's swampy. Like, I would take, I would honestly take the hundred and something you're dealing with down in Texas and Arizona right now, because, yes, it is, in fact, a dry heat, and two, there's air conditioning everywhere, (laughs) so. Yeah. Oh, boy. Hey, at least we're not in Florida. Normally... Normally it would be very humid here, but it has not been. So, yeah, it's been gross, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. We get through it. So, we're, I'm expecting another long one, my friends. And also, I'm ta- telling you, the listeners. So, we're going to forego our traditional warm up section uh, in favor of wrapping this episode under four hours. But I did want to issue a few corrections and clarifications at the start of the episode. Um, the good thing about having a second history episode is I can go back and uh, issue any corrections to mistakes we made on the previous episode. And there weren't too many, at least as far as I could tell. Um, These are more clarification points. I talked about Larry Niven last time and how Larry Larry Niven reached out, excuse me, um, and gave his blessings um, for the team to use the general product's name, which is true. But really, Toshio Okada and the team reached out first. to get permission, which I didn't mention, uh, to use the name. And Larry Niven was perfectly cool with them using the name, which I suppose kudos to him. But that was, I feel like the 1960s, 1970s was a little less of a litigious time than the 2020s, for example. 
And the other thing I wanted to point out, we talked about Daikon Films' filmography. Their last big film, their swan song, so to speak, Orochi, the, the big kaiju flick, it was filmed in Yonago, which was also Takami Akai's hometown. And the Yonago dialect is where they got the name Gainax, because Gaina in that dialect means big which we talked about, but I thought that was an interesting tidbit. I pulled that from an article uh, Sean O'Mara wrote for Zimmerit, uh, uh, on the uh, doing a deep dive into the history of Gainax. So shout-outs to him and shout-outs to Zimmerit. Now, Coop, oh, you yeah. had something you wanted to add here too, right? Yeah. Um, last time, because I was after re-listening to it, it was uh, stuck in my mind just about Anno and Co. leaving uh, the production of Macross in the last part to go work on Daikon 4. Um I kind of want to talk about tensions about that because I, I might have, uh, from what I've been reading here, uh, it might have been a little more lighthearted now looking in retrospect, but at least in Sadamoto, this case, uh, I was looking through some of the sources we'll be going through today, uh, Combustor Complete, we'll, we'll be talking about that book quite a bit, um, but um, talking about uh, Sadamoto, at least with him leaving the show, um, it sounded like Ishiguro and Co. were cool with uh, were cool with just being like, "Hey, do it, do what you want to, come on back." Um, but it didn't sound like it was any angry or condescending way, as it was noted that uh, Sadamoto had a chuckle about it. So that's a good sign. That's a good sign. And he would return for the end of Macross. Um, but also in that, there was a really good note that I think is really because we've talked so much about so much of these Macross creatives coming over into Gainax um, and back and forth and working on all these projects together. Um, Sadamoto was also talking about in that same bit that um, Gainax was uh, built very much in the Studio Artland mold, which makes a lot of sense when you consider that the only real studio that a lot of those people had worked at up to that point was Artland and on Macross. So I thought that was some pretty cool stuff there. <laughs> um, I do have just one thing uh, before we continue on. And I'll do this uh, when uh, just do this. I think it's good to mention this again. Mention this at the top of the last episode, just for myself. I'm going to put this disclaimer out here, just so you know, um, I've worked with Discotech Media. Uh, they license Gunbuster in the United States and some other uh, series we'll be talking about here as well. As such, just know that everything I talk about today is purely my own thoughts and doesn't reflect my sometime employers. Just got to point that out. <laughs> also, I have to do a disclaimer on this episode, too, because we're going to be talking about some stuff that was put out by Sentai, who I did contract work for a few years ago and have... Uh, friends and stuff who work there and same legal mm. disclaimer stuff going on but i did not work directly on any of the things that we're mentioning so mm-hmm. all good to point out pmc we need to get some disclaimers for us uh you should probably make me do disclaimers for the front mission episodes from now on because they keep giving me code for things <laughs> you didn't you didn't get any new codes did you uh well actually no I, I'm, two code, did they? I'm probably gonna get code for the uh, the pc port of front mission remake Oh, okay. that's coming out at the end of the month, uh, June thirtieth. Sweet. So look forward to that. It should be faster load times, <laughs> speed runs. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Me, a sucker, has the physical edition pre-ordered, and I should be getting that by the end of the month as well. 
All right, so before we jump into the episode proper, this isn't the last time you'll hear from us. Obviously, PMC and I are the hosts of this podcast. You'll be hearing from us as long as you choose to continue listening to Giant Robot FM. But Rex and Coop will be back um, sooner than you think. They'll be back for our episode two discussion on Gunbusters. So look forward to that. Woo! I'm without... <laughs> this is going to be a punchy episode, folks. Gunbuster after dark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Some of those Daikon 4 vibes. And yeah, now, now you say I, that. Uh, just, I was going to say, I just got back a little bit ago from uh, Father's Day with uh, my family, and we all had a lot of few drinks, mostly my dad did. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, you all days. sat around the TV and watched Daikon 4. I didn't know where that was going. <laughs> You know, you say After Dark PMC, and I think to myself, I remember that there was the nickname, because I read this like way back in the day, that another nickname for gu- Gunbuster was Bust Gunner. <laughs> that sounds yeah. perfect. <laughs> I gotta check out the other Gunbuster video game that's not related to the anime. I think it's a shmup. Mm-hmm. That's also one of my goals with this coverage. The Taito one? Yeah. Yeah, I played that on accident meme a few years ago because I thought it was going to be based on the anime, and instead I got a uh, really weird proto first-person shooter, and I I really like that game a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not a shmup? See? I'm glad. It's like, yeah, it kind of, like, I guess the best way to describe it, because it is kind of a shmup, but it's a first-person game, and you have independent, um, it's more of like a light gun game. Okay. than anything. Mm. And you use the light gun. The light gun has like a joystick thing built in. I was playing it on MAME, so I just made it a dual analog game, which is cheating, kind of. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, when you play the actual cabinet, it's like a joystick gun thing, and you have independent looking and moving, and you play it kind of like a modern first-person shooter, basically. It came out, I think, the same year as Wolfenstein 3D, too, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. All right. I don't know how to transition gracefully from 90s Taito pseudo shmup to early Gainax history. So there you go. Transition complete. Even though Royal Space Force didn't set the box office on fire, Gainax was by no means dead. The founders, Okada, Inoue, et al., fervently believed that the company should be allowed to continue on. In just a few years, this group of college dropouts turned amateur filmmakers brokered a multi-million dollar deal with one of Japan's largest entertainment companies to produce some of the most impressive two hours of animation ever put to film. They couldn't just throw that all away. However, some things had to change. For one, the industrial-sized studio that they had been working out of to create Royal Space Force was too expensive to maintain. They had to scale back. So, sometime in 1987, Gainax moved. 
The staff stayed in Tokyo, but relocated to a much smaller studio in Kichijoji, Minami. Meanwhile, back in Osaka, the mood wasn't quite as optimistic. General Products, the sci-fi specialty store that was both the catalyst and progenitor of Gainax, had hit hard times. While Wonder Festival was a runaway success, in fact, as Takeda recalls, it was, quote, rapidly becoming the store's primary source of investment capital, end quote, the store itself was generating less and less profit. Simply put, there was now a lot more competition in the enthusiast space, and Osaka was only so big. So, Takeda made the tough decision to move general products to Tokyo. His justification was twofold. One, all the licensors, licensors were in Tokyo, which would allow them to expand their contact base and enter into more partnerships. And two, Wonder Festival took place in Tokyo, and the travel cost for a biannual event, and sometimes not only biannual, sometimes three times a year, sometimes four times a year, that was burning a hole in the studio's pockets. So, that same year, 1987, General Products moved to Tokyo and officially merged with Gainax. However, not everyone was keen to leave Osaka. As Takeda remembers it, they lost some employees in the transition, leaving a staff of about 10. But Takeda's instincts did him well. Even before the Tokyo migration was complete, the company had managed to negotiate with Enix for the licensing rights to Dragon Quest. This partnership predated the release of Dragon Quest III, the success of which jettisoned Yuji Horii's RPG series to national phenomenon status. However, Enix wasn't completely accommodating. The company refused to part with the rights to any of Akira Toriyama's characters, which suited Takeda and his colleagues just fine. We were interested, Takeda says, in producing various items and equipment appearing in the game. This piqued Enix's interest. So, when General Products opened its doors in Tokyo, fans could snag a replica of Roto's sword and shield or a 500-piece map puzzle all official merchandise made by General Products. Right, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I need to interrupt this for a second. Has anyone yeah. here ever bought a a licensed jigsaw puzzle? I'm. J- I just got to check. No. I okay. So when I was a kid, I was naturally really we into jigsaw yes. puzzles. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I had a jigsaw puzzle phase for quite some time, and I'm trying to remember, like, exact, because most of the jigsaw puzzles I had were, like, pretty nondescript, like, oh, it's a hot air balloon thing, oh, it's something else, but I did have, I'm trying to, I want to say, ah, I'm trying, it was some sort of sci-fi, I think it was, I think I had a Star Wars jigsaw puzzle at some point. Mm, That's possible, yeah. And I pretty, like, it's all going to be, like, on-brand stuff because of course it is i want to say i had a star trek one as well okay and the half price books that i normally go to has a ton of licensed jigsaw puzzles and i haven't bought any of those yet because i haven't done a jigsaw puzzle since i think i was like 10 mm-hmm. but there's a goosebumps one that looks really neat that i have thought about oh that's possible yeah. up a few times. Mm-hmm. I own one. Someone was giving away a Jaws puzzle, a Jaws jigsaw puzzle in the teacher's lounge. They just dropped it off there. So I, I picked it up because my wife likes jigsaw puzzles. It's sitting in my house. We haven't opened it yet. It's not an extensive puzzle. It's like mm-hmm. 250 pieces. I think it's just the poster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my next question. Like, what, what Jaws 
graphic, is it? Yeah, no, none of the actors in the film are portrayed on it. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but it's probably best to mention here that Enix later commissioned Gynax to create Dragon Quest Fantasia Video, a direct-to-video live-action production that recreated famous scenes from the first three Dragon Quest games. Many of the studio's heavy hitters participated. Takami Akai directed the approximately 20-minute promotional video, while Toshio Okada produced. In addition, Shinji Higuchi handled the special effects, and Hideaki Anno and Yoshiyuki Sadamoto worked on a few animated components. This was developed concurrently and after the first two Gunbuster episodes, and released on December 21st, 1980, 1988. Did anybody... I just want to say... Go ahead. I was going to ask about this. <laughs> so, I... Meant to look for it this weekend, but I got too wrapped up in other stuff. But Dragon Quest Fantasia video looks so badass from like mm-hmm. the stills that are in the notes. Like the picture, there's a picture in the notes of like a slime, like a practical effect slime. And it, I, I want to watch this so bad. After this recording, I'm probably going to try and track down a copy because it looks really nice. I have a very big soft spot for the practical effects and like model stuff of this era and this it looks so beautiful the slime looks like it could be cake i'm really i feel like i yeah. could just bite into that slime i can see that yeah slime uh, looks like a pervert i'll say that mm-hmm. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, while does I was, have, like, it has creepy eyes yeah like those creepy eyes made me go while i was like watching back through it it's like real slime can't hurt you. It's not real. Um, as as a tokusatsu dork, uh, I really love, and as someone who likes Dragon Quest a fair bit, it's a really cute little short. Um, the music is great, despite the fact uh, who composed it, rest in piss. Um, but uh, I, I it's just it's a very lovely film. Like it, it just it gives you the right feels about Dragon Quest. Like these these bedtime story adventures you're going on, and you're getting just like a glimpse into the bedtime story adventure through this, and I really love it. It's it's, mwah. yeah. Initial correction here. I don't know if it's twenty minutes or forty minutes. I found two run times, but wasn't able to confirm. I want to say it was because I watched it recently because I believe I saw it on a place where use and tubes go together. Um that uh i think it's about 40 minutes because it's inner the clips are inner uh intercut with uh live orchestra performance okay that makes sense okay very cool and uh, dragon quest has a lot of interesting supplemental material dragon quest die is supposed to be hot stuff people really dig that manga and anime the anime i haven't i got i watched maybe about 10, 12 episodes in, it's been one It's like, man, I need to get back to that. Best shonen, probably in years, period, because it's just like no fat, or it's all killer, no filler, gets right to it. It's it's great stuff. It is really good stuff. I could just keep on chef's kissing because of how good it is. <laughs> yeah, I've been meaning to check that one out. There's the other one uh, from the 90s. I think it was mm. based on Dragon Quest three i watched a little bit of that a couple of years ago and it was really neat hmm. good comfy vibes 
How long has the manga been serialized for? Years at this point? Because I want to say Adventure of Die finished up like in the 90s. And it was oh, kind so of old? like a. Yeah, it's an old. Because they did an anime of it back in the 90s as well. But it went at a much slower pace because they're doing things concurrently. But this new version is like gorgeous. I think it just wrapped up. But it's like a close to 100 episodes of very 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 tight it's like a tight 100 and that's like so that sounds like something really weird to say but that like, sounds a, like what an anime sicko would say a tight 100 like usually <laughs> hey in a couple weeks we're gonna have a probably have a tight 24 of gundam so you know <laughs> you hear the discourse it's churning <laughs> churning it never stops it never ends Meanwhile, returning to 1987, following the release of Royal Space Force, Hideaki Anno, one of, if not the, star creative at Gainax, distanced himself from the studio. According to his official biography on Kara's website, during this time, Anno, quote, worked more closely with Studio Gravitron, which had recently moved because of the increasing numbers of animators that were joining its ranks, end quote. Later that year, Anno contributed to several projects, like the Ichiro Itano-directed adaptation of Battle Royal High School and Metal Skin Panic Maddox Zero-One, the Shinji Aramaki one-off OVA. Not to mention, not to bury the lead here, but during this time he did some mechanical designs on Shara's counterattack as well. However, even with Anno's aloofness, Gainax wasn't rudderless. According to Takeda, after the relocation, the studio found itself involved in a number of different projects. They worked on a music video for Bowie's Marionette and TV commercials, including one for Victor Hyper's Robot Compo, a premium sound system. Near the end of 1987, Gynax entered another partnership with Bandai. This time, they commissioned Gynax to make a live-action promotional video for an upcoming Appleseed OVA directed by Kazuyoshi Kadayama, of all people, the director of the Big O, which Takami Akai directed. So did either one of you know about these curios? Rex, you're a purveyor of esoterica. I imagine you have some experience or knowledge of these dank things. So the Appleseed promo, I watched that, I think it was about a year ago, because I, if I remember correctly, I was watched it i somebody like posted a twitter thread or something about it and i was watching it in a huddle room at my current job um so it had to have been within the last year that i watched it it's really cool i cannot remember i'm not super familiar with Appleseed or Appleseed lore but uh bunny robot man looks really cool but they don't really show him a whole lot in the videos oh that's but, a shame uh, seeing it kind of like move yeah, yeah. Yeah, it looks really cool, but you don't really get to see him do as much as you do in, like, the Appleseed OVA. Uh, the Marionette music video and the Victor commercial, I just saw today. Um, the Marionette video has a very cool sense of, like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Like, it's, Coop would probably do a better job describing it than I could, because it seemed like he has a lot more familiarity with it. But uh, it reminded me, it gave me some Tetsuo the Iron Man vibes a little bit, the way uh, the cinematography, I guess, worked out on it. 
Uh, the Victor Hyper Robot Combo didn't look like anything else. Uh, Gainax is done that I have seen. It's, a, it's really neat. It reminded me of uh, Gimme Kind of Conan the Barbarian vibes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of thought of those Cindy Crawford Bakari Sweat commercials a little bit with the Hyper Compo. Which those commercials rock, by the way. Go check those out. They're so good. Um, but those are the vibes I got. And I also kind of dig, too, that even when they were doing uh, with the Hyper Combo, uh, Hyper Robot Compo, that even when it's like straight commercial work, Gynax just takes the next step with it, regardless. I, I just I just love that. Um, but, uh, boys, the, the slash with the O makes me kind of a little confused on how to say it, but the song Marionette, that music video, so I've heard the song before, before watching the music video. Song's great. Really love it. Um, the music video is really cool, though. Um, the, the animation is, I, it's like, it kind of reminded me slightly of Take On Me in areas, but I can see what you mm. mean about the Tetsuo, the Iron Man stuff, especially with the emphasis on the, uh, on the gears at the beginning and end. Um, and I want, I'm trying to think of another place where I've seen some of the use of text at the beginning and end of it too. Cause the only other music video of the era that comes to mind is, uh, the music video for Sarah by fence of defense a little bit. Um, which is also another great one. Uh, one of the best anime openings ever, Sarah, fight me. Um, but Marionette, <laughs> I, I really dug it. Um, and also, I, I have a feeling, because I don't know if there's been a staff listing, the character designs looked very Sadamoto uh, when compared to uh, Royal Space Force. Yeah. So I, 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 I quite dug that. I think my favorite thing about it, though, is there's a, there's a thing at the end uh, where it goes from animation to the lead singer... Um, Kiyosuke Himero just throwing himself through a pane of glass and <laughs> it's great. Also, I was reminded of the music videos. Rex, you would appreciate this. The music videos of Kiyosuke Himero, um, uh, some ridiculous eighties and nineties stuff. Like, uh, he has a song called, uh, kiss me. Cause this gentleman went off to do his own solo stuff where it's, um, like different materials with a big theater projector uh, and it just projects the footage of him onto these materials and it's not like a composite shot it's like just projections the whole time it is an incredibly cool video and then also there's one from the early to early to mid 90s he did called stay and it's the most overexposed, washed-out thing I've seen in my life with crazy 90s scrawling letters here and there. It's, it's, it's great. It's great. I, I was reminded of when I went on a big uh, uh, Himero uh, down his rabbit hole back in the day in high school because, man, I listened to a lot of Japanese pop rock back then. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to check that out after this. It sounds so good. I'll have to send them to you. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> the internet tells me the band's name is pronounced Bowie, but I could be wrong in that. Funny enough, they disbanded like immediately after this music video release. So I think this came out near the end of 1987, and they were they were donezo by sometime in 1988. Gotcha. 
But I agree, it looks super cool. And I should say, Anno did the animation here, despite what his official biography states. So he was still working in some capacity with Gynax, but seems like he wasn't in the office much, as we'll talk mm -hmm. about a bit later. I found it interesting because the internet's been telling me that Gynax animated the this the one-off Appleseed OVA from the late 80s, but it's I think they just really did this live action promo video because if you go through the credits it's all it's not gynax yeah i've seen that pop up a few times too over the years i think this discotech just released it on blu-ray sometime in the last 12 months right yeah it wasn't yeah too it was ago. last yeah i want to say it came out last summer mm. yeah people on anime twitter jumped on that going oh yeah gynax did this well technically mm -hmm. I mean I, I mean, I love Katayama, but he's not a Gynax employee. Mm -hmm. Same vibes as the uh, recent kerfuffle the uh, Studio Ghibli directed an episode of Batman. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's been all sorts of discourse in those areas of the internet on mm -hmm. a variety of different topics. So this is, why, this is why I stay off anime Twitter sometimes. People just yell at me again this year, this Father's Day, about Tem Ray being a good dad. It happens like clockwork. If you think Tim Ray is a good father, please log off. I'm, oh I'm begging you. <laughs> Two years talking, in a row. My goodness. And we're talking about Gunbuster. There, there might be a... There, there's, there's some conditions around this good dad, but he, he all counts was a good dad. Was. Yeah, I was going to reverse the meme, and I was like, should I do... Because the last few years, we've done bad dads, like obvious bad dads. One year, I did the giant robo dad, who's a good dad. I thought to myself, should I pull four mecha good dads but i didn't really want to do the legwork mm -hmm. yeah it's want... easier to find bad dads yeah ideal. and people mm -hmm. would be getting up in my menchies about oh actually this guy's not good and i was like i don't need to deal with that in my <laughs> during my morning mm -hmm. however while gynax was picking up work for higher jobs to pay the bills work was quietly being done on the next big thing As mentioned, Royal Space Force didn't generate the hope for profits. However, Bondi was still game to fund a new project, provided that Gynax adhere to a few stipulations. So the first thing, their next project had to be an OVA. Remember, it's 1988, the height of the bubble economy. For example, this is the year Yakuza 0 takes place. People are just throwing money out of cabs. And the OVA market was red hot. There was money to be made. And two, it had to sell at least 10,000 copies, which if you do the math, you're dropping like $70 mm -hmm. on a VHS tape, 10,000 copies. Boy, you can make yourself a stew with that kind of money. With this in mind, Okada got to work on a proposal for Aim for the Top, otherwise known as... According to Okada... 
He wrote the base story, then gave it to Yamaga to write the screenplay. Apparently, and this is supported by several sources, Okada included, his initial treatment was much more humorous and parodic, or parodic, excuse me, than what Gunbuster eventually became. In an initial burst of enthusiasm, and credit to Ehoba here at H-T-G-O-I-W on Twitter uh, for the translation work. They do a lot of excellent translation work, and they release their findings on Twitter. Uh, but they pulled a great bit from Okada's, I think, autobiography, or a book that Okada wrote and published. And he mentioned that he was very excited during this time, and he sketched out a 26-episode outline of what Gunbuster could look like, despite the fact that legally, <laughs> I guess like contractually, Bandai only asked for six episodes. According to Okada, uh, he believed it would be a big hit and lead to be a long-running series. I'm going to mention this a few times during this recording, but Okada tends to exaggerate. You can kind of get that from some of his interviews, especially the further out the interviews are from the time he left Gainax. So take what he says Definitely take what he says about non things he didn't work on at Gynax with a grain of salt. Ava, in particular, he was only there for like the very beginnings of pre-production. He just likes to spin a yarn. So keep that in mind. All right, so he hands Yamaga this treatment. He's very excited for this potential future sci-fi OVA. Yamaga, on the other hand, was less confident in this project, but he was just as enthusiastic. Upon reviewing... Okada's treatment, Yamaga said, okay, this is my kind of work, but don't hope for a good screenplay. I'm going to make a stupid robot girl anime. <laughs> the pair brainstormed for more than three months, during which time Okada really emphasized his desire for a space setting until Yamaga finally put pen to paper and wrote up scripts for individual episodes. According to Yamaga, quote, I made Okada's joking ideas into a touching story. End quote. Yamaga, Yamaga seems very like very serious as an artist, which makes sense. Just think about what he did in 87. He directed Royal Space Force. 88, he wrote Gunbuster. 89, he wrote War in the Pocket. There is a through line of very... like There's, there's grounded sensibilities between all three of these works, and I have a feeling he thought himself above... I don't know, anime schlock, for lack of a better term. It, it also makes sense if you've seen Blue Blazes, because there's a scene in Blue Blazes where Okada really wants panty shots in Daikon 3, and the team was like, no. And they kind of had to like to talk around, like talk him out of it um, circuitously. And I, I get the sense that Okada, you know, enjoys his anime schlock, for lack of a better term. And speaking of Okada, again, take this with a grain of salt. He posits that he was the one who came up with the welcome back ending that was there from the very beginning. I, I cannot confirm nor deny it, but he takes credit for, I don't know, easily the most gut-wrenching and touching scene in the six-episode OVA. It's worth pointing out that at this early stage, Anno wasn't attached to the project. In fact, he wasn't even aware it existed, and this is supported by multiple sources. As Takeda recalls, the original plan was to have Shinji Higuchi direct. Yoshiyuki Satomoto, whom Higuchi brought onto this project at this early stage, remembers the team didn't want this project to be as serious as Royal Space Force. Quote, 
There was a desire to make this a brighter and lighter work. End quote. However, despite the progress made by Okada and Yamaga, the project stalled and Higuchi was pulled to other projects. I will say, too, just speaking of Higuchi here, in lighter tones, uh, Sadamoto and Gunbuster Complete also talks about, um, for the the desire to do something lighter, um, that he had, at the time, he had recently seen Project Echo and was like, let's do something like that, something that's fun and more animator-focused, that has the animators pushing the charge here, which I, oh boy, considering all the people working together on this, that... (laughs) I wonder if those original treatments and scripts are still around, and I would love mm-hmm. to see them published in a book. Hell, I would love to see like Ano get like Ano Yamaga Akata on record just f- to, like to reflect back on the, this time in their lives, mm-hmm. because we'll talk about the interviews that are included in some books that have been released recently. It's not the main crew; it's like the, I mean, they they of course it's it's the main crew, but it's not like the main five dudes who made Gunbuster, mm-hmm. and I kind of want to get their record too. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Anna was deep in the trenches on Asao Takahata's Grave of the Fireflies, working as a key animator. From interviews and conjecture, I get the sense that Anna was having a bit of an existential crisis. It was around this time that he was known to repeat, resignedly, quote, I'm just an animator forever, end quote. Furthermore, despite the pedigree of the project, Anno felt unfulfilled. He spent nearly a month illustrating a sequence depicting the heavy cruiser Maya, but seeing how the ship was blackened out on screen left him feeling dejected. As fate would have it, his fortunes were set to change. Also, I had no idea that Anno worked on Grave of the Fireflies. That was news to me. No doubt the Hayao Miyazaki connection um, secured him that job. One day, Anno decided to drop by Gainax's new studio, where he gave the initial script a read-through and became so fired up that he volunteered to fill in for Higuchi. Apparently, he was just as cool on Okada's treatment as was Yamaga. However, his imagination lit up after reading Yamaga's script for the second episode. Like Noriko, his head was in the stars. At this point, the foundation for Gunbuster, even though it would go through further changes, was pretty much set. The pitch document clearly identified the OVA's scope and influences, quote, Aim for the Ace and Top Gun, a new robot anime that mixes the success story of Aim for the Ace and the mechanical suspense of Top Gun. All right, Coop, my friend, now this is your time to shine. You have seen... Osamu Dezaki's 1973 series, so I want you to do a few things. I want you to tell us about that show, what some to be considered his masterpiece, and like, what are some of the obvious points of comparison? How did this TV show, this, this adaptation of a manga series, inspire Gunbuster? All right, uh, let's, let's serve up the first volley here. So, Aim for the Ace. It is based off uh, Sumiko Yama. Yamamoto smash hit shoujo manga that took Japan by storm in the 70s, directed by the great Osamu Tezaki. Um, it's about Hiromi Oka. She joins Nishihai's tennis club alongside her good friend Maki. And everybody is fawning over the Madam Butterfly, the best senior upperclassman tennis player, uh, Reika Ryuzaki. Then all of a sudden, 
this mysterious demon coach comes out of nowhere and turns her life out, out upside down and things carry on from there. Um, I will have to definitely shout out to Dawn from the Anime Nostalgia Podcast. She has a great article on Anime Herald going a little more into the meat of this uh, specifically. And I would tell you she is the perfect guest to have on your episode one coming up here soon. Because that is the most aim for the AC it gets. But Aim for the Ace is a hot-blooded tennis show with a lot of good drama and like... The best way I could describe it, mean girlsy infighting. I, 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 it's, I, I greatly enjoy it. Um, but yes, Gunbuster takes so much from it, regardless of just the name, uh, the obvious name part. Aim for the top, aim for the ace. Um, so uh, visually, it takes a lot from the film version that was done. The, from excuse me, it takes a lot visually from the 1979 film. That's uh, very much it's kind of like a Do You Remember Love situation for the folks who haven't seen it before. Kind of it's very much its own telling retelling of the story. Uh, but it takes a lot visually from that. I noticed that right after because I watched the movie right before I got my copy of Gunbuster, and uh, oh boy. And there's a lot of little things, too. Like in episode one, there's a thing with a thumbtack. And that shows up in the series. Not the movie, though, but that shows up. Um, and a lot of uh, the characters, as, as you could already tell, um, you have Analog, uh, the coach, Noriko, Kazumi, Kimiko. They're all kind of sort of based off other characters from Aim for the Ace. And Mikimoto, actually, in those interviews with Sadamoto, talks a little bit about adapt, adapting character designs here and there uh, without making it completely parody. Like, the spirit is there, but it's not the dollar store cosplay version of it. It's like its own thing uh, fully out there. Um, I will notice here, uh, note here too as well, just on that, something I found really funny. There's a jealous rival character named for the ace by the name of Otoa. And in pre-production, uh, Reiko, who uh, challenges uh, Noriko in episode one, she didn't have a name. So they're like, let's just call her Otoa. And Otoa is also a scorned uh, girl who wasn't uh, teamed up with the One-sama everybody loves and wants revenge <laughs> on uh, Hiromi. So there's a lot of a lot of good stuff there. I will tell you, it makes watching Gunbuster... A very interesting experience with that con context. Uh, Shoutouts to Caitlin Moore and her review on ANN of Gunbuster that gets into that because it's you see Gunbuster and it's a good thing I watched the first episode a time or two before my proper rewatch of Gunbuster so I can get all the aim for the ace out of my system because you see so much in it of aim for the ace but eventually it grows into its own thing. Uh, by but still it with how it starts off it, it is interesting how a lot of the creative staff um, whether it be um, from conversations uh, Sadamoto had with Higuchi or stuff that Kohei Tanaka talks about later on we'll get to that a lot of folks were like this is just going to be a parody isn't it but it becomes much more than that um, it, honestly at least for me it made it very interesting to see how I would also change my perspective on Die Buster a lot too going into that because it's like 
different creators and different prerogatives, but it felt like it was building off the legacy of something that became its own thing and how Diebuster has to become its own thing again, given all the fooly coolage and the original Gumbuster sauce that is in that mixture that they're trying to make this new thing from. My only other note here on that, I will say, just talking about watching stuff with context, um, another shout-out to my friend Carlos on the Heroes 3 podcast. They talked about Project ACO, and they made a great point talking about how when ACO first hit the States, in the same case with Gumbuster, people... Uh, people fell in love with it without that original context of parody and X, Y, and Z. And with both of them, it has, at least in the States, you can kind of see it for its own thing, but it's a totally different experience once you know what it is poking at specifically. It, it's really fascinating. I think as a fan of Gumbuster watching aim for the ACE and then Gumbuster has made me love both even more. Go check out Aim for the Ace. Like, seriously, it is also really, really good stuff that would pair wonderfully with a Gunbuster viewing. It's on my things to watch list. Rex, have you watched it? I started it. So I have this weird thing with the uh, Dazaki stuff where after I watched Dear Brother, which is probably my... It's in my top three, for sure. This is best. But, uh, it's if I like... Watch, like yeah, it's God tier, and I watched, like, when I got the Aim for the Ace Blu-ray, I watched, like, the first, like, three or four episodes in one sitting, and I was like, this is good, but I think I want to watch Dear Brother now. So I did that again, and I haven't gone back to Aim for the Ace yet. Hmm. I watched enough to, I think, kind of get where it was going and get the drift of it and everything, but uh, I've actually got it sitting right here, because I was digging through discs for uh, research for this episode, and I'm probably going to revisit it this week. I I will say too, um, aim for the ace is also like just talking about Osamu Dezaki, the relationship between aim for the ace and dear brother is so interesting because it's like two it's adaptations of the work of completely two different authors, but you can see like the same uh, Onesama um, jealous girl who wants to get back at the girl who was cho- chosen. There are so it's like Dezaki is commenting on his work for Aim for the Ace, which he was very famous for at the time uh, when they when they did Dear Brother. That it's just like it's it's this weird 4D test of commenting on your own work using somebody else's work, which is just masterful. Like uh, before we move on on Dezaki, this is just a pers- personal opinion. Dezaki is one of those directors that I'd love to see more people talking about in the same tones as Miyazaki, because outside of like anime nerds like us, like you don't hear Dezaki's name too much. When Dezaki is just such a important to Western anime an, animated productions and such a amazing catalog of films, like in shows, like holy shit. Yeah, it's one of my favorite rewatches I've done since I watched Dear Brother was the Space Adventure Cobra movie when I got the 4K of that. Uh, I actually bought that well before I had a player that could do 4K, so I watched it at a friend's house. I was like, hey, uh, let me use your PS5 and we can watch this in 4K. I brought over that and Miami Connection to kind of like sweep the pot. Like, we watched this and then we'll watch Miami Connection after that. We're just kind of like 
blown away. Like, because he had watched a bit of Dear Brother too, and we were like, well, there's like the same, like, because Dazaki kind of has, I wouldn't call it a formula, but he has a very specific, like, hallmarks and, like, motifs and stuff that he uses, and seeing those applied to a hard sci-fi story, and, like, actually realizing, oh, hey, these are his trademarks, these aren't just, like, a cool flourish that he decided to do just for this, it was really, really fun. My follow-up question here, and I, I imagine this, this is a fever dream, but for some reason I thought PMC had seen Top Gun. But then he upped the stakes by telling me the most PMC thing imaginable. Because so I said, hey, have you seen Top Gun? I'm making this up. And in fact, dear listener, I'm making this up. But then he said, well, PMC, what did you say? I said that I did recently watch a playthrough of the Top Gun licensed video game for GameCube. There you have it. Insert st- bog standard PMC yeah. comment. PMC, the- <laughs> tell me a little bit about this game. Oh, it, I think it was um, it, it, it was just a, a basically a flight sim that had nothing to do with it. That um, that just you know just they somehow got it was in the sixth generation. Like you know how there's a lot of like really cool anime games. Uh, you, Gunbuster, for example, you know tie it in topically. Uh, in the sixth generation, a lot of Western movie licenses just got sort of picked up for some reason. As like uh you know, just as like a thing to do. And so Top Gun, I believe it's Combat Zones is the one I'm I'm thinking of, uh, which was published by Titus Interactive. Titus Interactive was a publisher known for doing <laughs> these kinds of things. There's a two thousand three Robocop game that's, you know, the same kind of bullshit. Obviously, it's a little harder not to do Robocop in a Robocop game as compared to this, where a flight sim could just pass for a top gun game and some people won't ask questions. I have the RoboCop game, and it's a piece of shit. <laughs> I, I have I have friends who have put a lot of work in on speedrunning that game, and uh, and like it's it's funny, but it's also a piece of shit. <laughs> the, the best thing to come out of that is uh, I remember when he was at GameSpot, uh, Alex Navarro did a video of him chronicling himself through the torturous process of playing RoboCop and reviewing it for GameSpot. Yep. Check that out. It's 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 a good one. <laughs> I, I, I have much, much higher hopes for many of the PS2 anime licensed games that I'm sure we'll, we'll play, including Gunbuster. Mm-hmm. Even the bad ones are good, in my opinion, just because it's, like, novel to see that aesthetic mm-hmm. and, like, the characters from a series that we're familiar with like rendered like sixth generation 3d mm-hmm. like there's enjoyment to be had in, that, in my opinion i you have a good point there because i remember being really excited about the first full out metal alchemist ps2 game and while i was not crazy about it and i thought i don't know what's going on here man i thought it was super cool regardless <laughs> Yeah, there's a uh, the Loop on the Third game that came out over here. Mm. I'm a real big Loop on fan. I have bought at least four copies of that game over the years because it, it's not a very fun game to play. It's kind of a pain. I I think one time I made it past the first level. It's just not very not very fun. And what happens is like pretty much since the day it came out because I bought a copy the day it came out in the U.S. and I think I sold it a year or two later i'll get it i'll try and play it and after the initial oh this is cool to see them in 3d wears off i won't touch it for a while and then when i call my connect my collection i'm like okay i can get rid of this one and 
I'm not doing that again. I bought my fourth copy in 2019. A friend of mine that works at a game store is like, hey, we got the Lupin game in. Uh, do you want me to save this for you? And I was like, yes. And I went and picked it up. And I'm just going to not sell it this time and have it on hand. So in five years when I want to play it again, I can play it for 10 minutes and be like, okay, that's enough of that. I respect that. I I should do that with the Astro Boy game because I remember being super hyped by that back in the day. Good old Sonic team. <laughs> That, that's another one. I've owned two copies of that game, and I haven't seen it in the wild since I sold the second copy, and I was wanting to replay that. Uh, I mean, I have a modded PS2 now, too, so that solves a lot of problems, but I would like a physical copy of it, and I haven't seen one around for a reasonable price in a minute. Mm-hmm. Now, Rex, Coop, do you, either of you have any Top Gun experience Coop, as a Macross podcaster, you've seen Top Gun, yes? Yes, yeah. I uh, I enjoy Top Gun. I think it's a really fun movie. For a while there, I had it like on the background, on in the background while I was doing other stuff for a good while. It is propaganda, but it's enjoyable. Um, Top Gun Maverick also uh, in that same propaganda, but enjoyable if you can maybe slightly look away from that part for just a little bit the flying action's cool the the some of the other stuff yeah hot take i actually think i like uh top gun maverick more than the original i feel like a lot of people share that same opinion Mm. based on shatter online it's good it's real good yeah there's there's more like dramatic stakes happening in the plot i i got a big kick out of it i wasn't I was also expecting it to be garbage, but I had a good time with that one. Mm-hmm. That's one of those movies where, since I didn't see it in theaters, I know I'm not going to get around to it. Kind of, that's kind of the reason. That's what's that's the like, gravitational pull that's going to drag me into Oppenheimer because I I want to see that in the big theater. Me too. No, don't you just want to go over? IMAX. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why don't you just go in the next door over and see Barbie instead? I knew you were going to bring up a Barbie thing. <laughs> I want to see Barbie too. Greta Gerwig legitimately rules. Nolan's fine. I'm. I'm just. I want to see. Speaking of Father's Day, that's. I'll probably drag my dad to that because that's like a classic dad movie. Let's go see Oppenheimer. Yeah, I'm going to do uh, that day probably a double feature of Oppenheimer and Barbie. <laughs> Hell yeah! Like the most insufferable person for like the next three days talking about <laughs> both of them nonstop. <laughs> Now, friend of the show, Ethan Hawker, would chastise me if I didn't mention that Dan Guard Ace, a 70s mecha show created by the legendary Leiji Matsumoto, was also another inspirational source. Ethan mentioned in a conversation with us some structural similarities, emphasis on training, the titular mecha not appearing until later in the show, the lead's father disappearing, that are probably too striking to be entirely coincidental. However, a high-budget OVA would need more than a handful of influences and like-minded creatives to see it through. It needed a team.
Given that this is the conclusion of a two-part retrospective, we've already introduced and talked about many of these folks. Predictably, a lot of familiar faces worked on Gunbuster. After all, by 1988, Gynax had only been around for roughly four years. Not really enough time for a significant staff exodus. So, let's start with the Gynax vets. Toshio Kata, credited for writing the original story and screenplay. Uh, specifically, he is credited on episodes one and two, screenwriting-wise. Hideaki Anno, director, storyboarder, and screenwriter for episodes five and six. Hiroyuki Yamaga, screenwriter. Shinji Higuchi, storyboarder. Yoshiyuki Satomoto, animation director. Mahira Maida, key animator, mechanical designer, and he did some setting work as well. Takami Akai is the one notable absence. During the production of Gunbuster, he was overseeing Dragon Quest Fantasia before spearheading Gainax's foray into the world of video games. However, the team saw fit to name Kimiko's daughter after him. Like, literally, she's named Takami Akai. So his presence wasn't completely unfelt. We'll get to this when we talk about the individual episodes, but everyone in this show is named after someone who worked on Gynax or is related to someone who's working at Gynax. It's really down to like each and every character. There's a, like a clear connection with reality. Like with the Daikon 4 opening animation, Anno and company enlisted the help of some of their Studio Nue colleagues, namely Kazutaka Miyatake and Haruhiko Mikimoto, as mechanical designer and character designer, respectively. These were two big gets. As the encyclopedic collection of Gunbuster, Diebuster book points out, quote, it is an undeniable fact that Mikimoto and Miyatake, who are gaining tremendous popularity in science fiction anime, such as the Super Dimension Fortress Macross at the time, were the sales for the project, end quote. It's worth mentioning that after Gunbuster, and there's probably some overlap here, Mikimoto designed the characters for yet another Yamaga Pandovier. Mobile Suit Gundam 0080 wore in the pocket. Now, Coop, as the resident Macross expert, how do you feel about the choice to bring these two on board, particularly Mikimoto? Like, do you think his style was the right fit for Gunbuster? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Because I, I think of when it comes to character, iconic character designers of the 80s like it's Yas and then it's Mikimoto because there's just with how high emotions get over the course of Gunbuster I, I I can't think of a lot of a lot of other character designers whose uh, characters would fit just as well also I I'm also biased because uh, very biased because Gunbuster was my first Mikimoto involved thing I saw period so um, I can't imagine a gun, a gunbuster, diebuster is its own other thing. I can't imagine gunbuster without Mikimoto's character designs. It's just, yeah, like this war, uh, excuse me, this war in the pocket, and probably Macross Two are probably some of the best realizations of his character designs too, just on a whole another thing to point out and also do you remember love yes i didn't forget it i didn't forget it <laughs> yeah when i think 1980s i think mikimoto when i think 1980s anime immediately i think of mikimoto's visual sensibilities mm. 
Rex, how about you? You got experience? You got Mikimoto takes here? Yeah, I am a big fan uh, specifically of... Uh, I mean, I like all of his stuff, but uh, War in the Pocket and Macross 2 specifically besides Gunbuster hold very special places in my heart, like big time. Can't wait until that Macross 2 Blu-ray finally comes out. Me too, honestly, out of all of the uh, Macross blues that we're going to be getting over the next year, I'm probably, well, I'm probably equally excited about Plus and 2, but 2 I feel super underrated. I don't know how much of that, though, is uh, when I did finally watch it in the late 2000s, I had been led to believe for several years, thanks to the internet, that it was garbage. And then I got a copy of it on VHS at Half Price Books and realized that it was not, in fact, garbage. So, and I'm a big Macross 2 fan. We're so far out from the boom days of, like, traditionally hand-drawn OVAs from the 80s and 90s that everyone is such a treasure that even if a show is shit, just the production values values mm-hmm. would probably sell it for me. Yeah, no, I think about that a lot, actually. There's that, and then because I've had this running theory uh the last couple of years well, i say a theory it's just something i've observed like it doesn't matter if the movie is garbage or not uh if it was a movie made like something about the film stock of movies that was made or were made in like the early to mid 90s as long as the transfer is good and it looks like you're watching it on film i'm gonna have a much better time watching it, it could be the biggest piece of shit movie ever but if it looks, if it's got that grain and that mm-hmm. jitter and stuff, and it, if it has practical effects in it, even if they're shitty, even more so, I'm still going to have a better time watching it than stuff that's shot on digital because it just it feels cinematic. And mm-hmm. there's a part uh, later in this podcast where we're going to talk about that with the hyping hot take that I have on Gunbuster related stuff. But, uh, Based on our conversation right now, I'm reminded of a comment I read on Reddit about Giant Robot FM saying, yeah, the podcast is good, but they're they're so old. And I'm reminded <laughs> of that right now. We sound like old parts. It's not a criticism. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I've been thinking since I posted that take in the episode chat earlier, I've been uh, been like trying to critically assess it before I say it on air, so I don't like... Because it was a hard thing for me to, like, come to terms with and stuff. But I was, like, thinking about, like, the texture of film and the grain and stuff in general. And, like, digital projection and things being shot on digital in general. That was very much a uh, early 2000s. I think most theaters replaced their film projectors with digital projectors when Attack of the Clones came out in 2002. So most people under the age of 30 aren't even going to know what that looks like outside of mm-hmm. like a Adobe Premiere filter. I could actually give you a date for, so I worked at a, at AMC movie theater, a local AMC movie theater. And we, around the year 2007, 2008, we started getting rid of all of our uh, traditional projectors that played, you know, film stock. Uh, but we had a few until July 17th, 2010. So the last film we got on, on I was a 35 millimeter, was Arietti. Uh, fittingly so, considering wow. this is an anime podcast. I bet that looked incredible, too. Yeah. Like that friend. Mm-hmm. 
I mentioned this before, but I was a projectionist. I scratched the shit out of so many like good films. Uh, Casino. I was I was being trained to be a projectionist uh, on, when Casino Royale was in theaters, and the Venice scenes, which were super bright, I just ripped the shit out of that film. And you could see like scratch marks coming down when Ava Green and Daniel Craig are like on the little uh, gondola going through Venice. Oh my god! <laughs> I got better. I dropped Shrek, Shrek three uh, humorously enough, and they had to pick up the pieces. <laughs> hey, it happens. What's the one to drop? Mm-hmm. That's before Shrek was like hot shit with the kids. Before it was like in, a, a language in and of itself, how people communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> which also makes me feel like being like. Having seen the first one in theaters when I was, like, of the age to enjoy it unironically and just not really thinking a whole lot of it, and then all of a sudden it becomes a meme, like, the last, like, five or six years, probably longer than that. Makes me feel the type of way. Rex, you'll appreciate this. Whenever anyone mentions the first Shrek, I always think of a brick-and-mortar Sharper Image store, which, of course, no longer exists, near my house in walking distance. And I'd sometimes take a walk there, and there'd always be, like, rows of portable DVD players playing the first Shrek film. <laughs> that was the movie, that, like, back then. Like, they, like, that and Finding Nemo. I remember when we had substitutes in, like, junior high and high school. Yeah. It was always one of those, two. Wasn't there like a Game Boy Advance video of Shrek or Shrek yes. 2 as well? I think there was. Okay. Yeah, there sure was. Okay, okay. There's the Xbox game too, the OG Xbox game. Might have been multiplayer. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, it was uh, the first game to use uh, bump mapping, I want to say. Like, there were, it was either bump mapping or girl rat shading, one of the two. Like, it pioneered that being used in video games i remember like say and todd mcfarlane worked on it too apparently which is real weird but i remember like seeing that in uh on an xbox like launch uh dvd thing that came with the uh, xbox magazine i was like oh shrek but did that movie come out a few years ago that's kind of weird to like be pushing that as a big launch game i think it was in seventh grade at the time Hmm. god that makes me feel old (laughs) welcome to giant robot fm everyone Mm mm-hmm (laughs) <laughs> but Miyatake wasn't the only mechanical designer on Gunbuster. Koichi Ohata, who had participated in Mobile Suit Gundam Shara's counterattack, was commissioned by Anno to design the titular Gunbuster. Basing his final design on sketches by Anno, he cites Getter Robo, Ideon, and Combatler 5 as points of inspiration for the iconic mecha. Coop, you had a note here. Yeah, I also will mention, too, that in Gunbuster Complete, they also mention, with both Gunbuster and the Sizzlers from the near the end of the series, at the head of Gauss from the Gamera series is also a very high, very, very intentional uh, uh, inspiration they took from that. And while we're on the tokusatsu front, they also talk about how the physicality of Gunbuster is based off of classic robot suits like Mac Baron or the original giant robo. So I, mm. I find that t- to be uh, quite cool. And while it's not directly about uh, Gunbuster, I think this next little t- tidbit still applies. Um, also, 
in Gunbuster Complete, they talk a bit about the idea of a pretty girl piloting something clunky like a Rick Dom in uh, terms for the RX machines early on. But again, Gunbuster still kind of applies to that. <laughs> I should ask now, Rex Coop, do you have any like Gunbuster the Mecha thoughts? Because you're both on episode two and the Gunbuster doesn't even, you don't even see like a glimpse of the Gunbuster until I believe the end of episode three. Mm. When it does finally show up, though, it is so cool. Oh, yeah. It, it really feels like uh, there's a lot of narrative payoff to that moment of Gunbuster actually showing up. And I, I really like that part of episode three a lot. I really want a kit of the Gunbuster. I want the Gunbuster in my room. The, the Aoshima one looks like the one to get, and having put together their Ingram recently, I can vouch for the quality. It's 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 not as uh, throw it against the wall like an HG Bandai kit is, uh, but it's it's pretty solid. Um, I will say, too, is uh, since we won't be getting on to Rex and I won't be around for the Gunbusters debut. Those RX machines, though, I dig them. They are they are a little dumpy, but what I really loved was, and I noticed this was able to notice this watching the new Blu-ray that a lot of the designs are based off of sports brands like coaches is like a nike and i i think norco looks slightly adidasy like there's a bunch of sports brand references in there and i um i knew to look for that because they're all laid out in gumbuster complete too and i'm like oh okay i see what you're doing here <laughs> it's crazy too because apparently the rx name didn't come from gundam it came from the mazda car too which is like, these are mechanical dorks, and I love them. <laughs> I had no idea about that. That's so good. It's so cool. Like, co- I think Coaches, uh, hey, with Perfect Episode, Coaches in Episode 2 literally has the Nike swoosh on it. <laughs> ah. I should also mention that Maida did some cleanup work on some of the mechs as well. The, bo- the most memorable designs were all done by Ohata, uh, Miyataki did a lot of design work that doesn't actually show up in the show. Uh, if you go through any of the like the supplemental material, you can check them out. But a lot of that work, again, doesn't appear in any of the six episodes. But the heavy hitters keep on coming. Seriously, the creative team behind Gunbuster was a murderer's row of talent. Next up, we have Toshiyuki Kuboka, an illustrator who's near and dear to my heart, who was brought on to direct the character animation. Kubuka, at least according to me, is most famous for his work as character designer of the Lunar franchise. Of course, Silver Star Story and Eternal Blue are the standouts, but he also worked on the more obscure and less praised installments like Magic School Lunar and even the infamous Dragon Song. I suppose, though, I'm bearing the lead because uh, Kubuka is also one of the three character designers on Giant Robo. He has a very distinct style, like very curvy lines, very soft characters. Kuboka, in addition to being an accomplished character designer, is also a veteran animator. He would go on to become an anim- he would go on to become an animation director on Nadia. He also directed Working Through the Pain, a part of Batman Gotham Knight, the 2008 animated anthology. And he's still in the industry today. He's best known for his work on the Idol Master games. I I will say, if y'all get the chance, uh, Gotham Knight is a cool. Uh, kind of like second st- stab at an animatrix idea. I don't think it's quite as memorable, but it's worth checking out at least once. Was the Halo anthology also 
like uh, overseen by Japanese studios. Remember that one? I think so. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure that um, Aramaki's CG guys worked on that in one of his CG studios. I think it was when he was with Casio that they did that. What was the show that Aramaki worked on that they just didn't release? Was that an Alien vs Predator thing? Yes. Mm. Yeah, uh, somebody who worked used to work at uh, Fox, I believe, mentioned that on Twitter a month or two ago. Makes me really sad to not see that, because I, I like Aliens versus Predator a lot, and I feel that there hasn't been a... I feel like there haven't been a whole lot of good uh, adaptations of that to non-comic book mediums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. The... Um... The two movies are way too self-serious, and I was, and I was working at the movie theater. I was super excited for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, scores of individuals worked on Gunbuster. It would be too time-consuming and tedious to list them all. However, I want to highlight one more creative before we move on to the next segment. Satoshi Urushihara, still early in his career, Urushihara had yet to carve out a niche for himself. He was brought on to the project as a key animator. In the years to follow, he would make a name for himself as the character designer on the Langrisser and Growlancer strategy RPG series, Assault Suits Valken, which will be the topic of our next simulator episode, and a whole bunch of hentai. Um, if you're trying mm-hmm. to think of his style, very this isn't an insult necessary, very plasticky characters. like They all have a sheen to them, and th- their hair is immaculate. Um, they They almost feel like anime action figures just how mm-hmm. statuesque they look mm-hmm. and he has very distinctive style if you've seen one of his characters you've you can you can pick him out in the lineup uh sadamoto has a very funny anecdote he points out that urushihara became enthusiastic about bouncing boobs due to sadamoto's animation uh, remember this is like the origin of the gynax bounce you may have referred to this as g- gynaxing when a uh a busty female character is walking and the boobs are bouncing, for lack of a better term. <laughs> Sadamoto jokes that he was a life ruiner, so I guess he sent Urushihara down that path. <laughs> I, I will say, too, uh, for Urushihara works, stuff he worked on that I always thought really fun, um, Bubblegum Crisis, because he did a lot of animation work on that, too. Uh, it was funny because we also mentioned Aramaki. Some of those guys worked on, on Bubblegum Crisis, too. But Bubblegum Crisis is also great. Mwah. Yeah, that is a good one. I, you know, that I kickstarted that Blu-ray some back in the day. Hell yeah. I could go to bat for the Langrisser games and the Growlancer games. They rule. CareerSoft, the company who made them, uh, which itself is an offshoot of Messiah, they were absorbed into Atlas, and I don't know what the fuck they're working on now. I'm not sure how many of those guys are still around. I bet it's the Persona Tactics game, um, but they, they rule. Check out their games. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there just a remaster of Landrisser, one of them, a mm-hmm. couple years ago, too? Yeah, the, the, the first two games for Switch, uh, they dumped all of Urshihara's artwork, though. Oh, I you know from a modern perspective, I can see why why you do that. Just because if you search to uh, Satoshi Rushihara, you're more likely to see his adult work yeah, than anything else. Like the the thing you'll see in the middle of that is maybe plastic little stuff, but that oh boy, the, that guy puts too much detail on a certain thing. I will not go further in onto on this podcast. <laughs> oh boy. 
This is really a giant robot FM after dark. Yeah, for the listeners, uh, if you're not familiar with Plastic Little, I mentioned it in my uh, History of Hentai in North America um, panel at Anime Lockdown a couple months ago. It wasn't technically hentai, but ADV, when they put it out on DVD, included a special feature uh, jiggle counter, which was a subtitle track that contained a graphical counter of a giant pair of boobs with a counter on it. Every time there was even so much as a slight boob jiggle on screen, that counter would go up to one. Or go up one. What a time. <laughs> yeah. The 2000s was really, was really the end of history. <laughs> but with all this talk of new staff, there's one elephant in the room that we haven't mentioned. And that is Koei Tanaka, Gunbuster's composer. Fittingly, Tanaka grew up in Osaka. Born in 1954, he was a bit older than the Daikon crew, but not by much. I should say he is a bit older. They're all still alive. According to Tanaka, he was inspired to become a composer when he was 13 years old and attended an international performance of the Bayreuth Festival, which is an event typically held in Bayreuth, Germany, featuring the works of Richard Wagner. This was a catalyzing moment that put everything in motion. I was overwhelmed, Tanaka remembers. Quote, It was so great. The performance lasted for four hours and a half. So four and a half hours, and then the curtain call lasted for an hour and a half. No one laughed during that long time. I kept clapping so hard my palms were swollen. It changed my life. I started to wish to make moving music like this. From that concert, Tanaka recalls the program included Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, which, even if you only listen to it for half a minute, you can tell it left an indelible impression on Tanaka. Like Wagner, Tanaka's music has a grandeur and volume to it, so much so that it almost exerts a gravitational force, which is appropriate, considering we're talking about Gunbuster here. And I feel like both composers have the uncanny ability to tug on the heartstrings of listeners. Not that I'm going to bat for Wagner, by the way. Tanaka seems like a cool dude. (laughs) Wagner, among other things, was a raging anti-Semite. But the road for the young Tanaka would not be an easy one. Like with so many creative types, it was circuitous and full of diversions. Credit to Tanaka's father, though, who was a constant source of motivation and support. The elder Tanaka was a third-generation doctor and, predictably, wanted his son to continue the tradition. 
But once he talked to him about his compositional aspirations, he changed his tune. Pun intended. Quote, I wanted to be a newspaper reporter, but became a doctor as my father told me to succeed him. If you really want to become a composer, go ahead. End quote. But his father had one stipulation. Go to the best school and become the best composer in Japan. He literally told his son to aim for the top. So, he heeded his father's words and took the Tokyo University of the Arts entrance exam, and he got accepted. Unlike the majority of the Gainax founders, Tanaka not only graduated, but passed with high marks. However, he had difficulty making the leap from music undergraduate to professional composer. So, as a stepping stone, he took a job at Victor Music Industries, a record company. He was assigned to the advertising department. Even though he wasn't composing, that didn't mean he wasn't gaining insight or acquiring valuable experience. He remembers, quote, I was able to be always present in the filming of TV music programs, recording sessions, and concerts to watch how they are like. I also traveled across Japan accompanying many singers. End quote. Three years into his post-collegiate life, his father became ill. Tanaka's father said to him from his sickbed, I gave up on you becoming a doctor, but it was not to make you a salaried worker. What happened to your plan of becoming a composer? This forced him to reevaluate his life goals. Recommitted now to becoming a composer, Tanaka went to the United States to study jazz at the Berklee College of Music in Boston. Exposed to all sorts of new influences, this was an eye-opening experience for the still young Tanaka. When he returned to Japan, he worked as a part-time pianist at a hotel lounge. Eventually, the context he had built up over time at Victor paid off. Toyohisa Araki, a lyricist whom whom he knew and worked with, asked Tanaka if he would like to work as a composer at a new company he was forming. This was his big break. Tanaka began his career as a composer writing music for commercials and TV dramas. This was 1982. Over the next few years, his reputation in the industry began to solidify. Tanaka got work composing for the anime, or he got work composing for anime, like Kinikuman and tokusatsu shows like Space Sheriff Shider. Over the next few years, he began to build up his resume. In 1985, he was approached by Morihiro Nagata, a music director on a little show called Super Dimension Fortress Macross, who asked him to take over compositional responsibilities on Dream Star Button Nose on account of the composer getting sick. Even though he had a criminally short amount of time to complete the work, four days to write 76 orchestral pieces, he succeeded admirably. So much so that Shiro Sasaki, a producer at Victor who was present for the recording of those pieces, took note of Tanaka's skill. As Tanaka remembers it, quote, My relationship with the Nagata and Sasaki duo led me to work on Gunbuster, end quote. But it wasn't love at first sight. All right, so before we get there, I want to pause here. Coop, Rex, what's your history with Tanaka? He scored scores of video games and anime over the years. Pat Labor, Soccer Wars, 08th MS Team, One Piece, Gravity Rush. I'm sure you've encountered him before. 
So two big ones that he did that uh, were very, they're still important to me, but were extremely important to me in my teenage years when I was first getting into anime. Uh, he did Otaku no Video, uh, another Gainax one that was actually like the second Gainax thing that I ever watched. I watched that a couple months after FLCL aired on Adult Swim. Um, so that was a big one. And then he also did Bastard, which was a weirdly like... So, Bastard was one of those, a friend of mine got the DVD at GameStop when they were carrying anime. It was like $10 used. My mom had taken us to uh, GameStop during a LAN party, because we used to have Halo 2 LAN parties a whole lot at, right oh, after yeah. that came out. So, that became, like, for about a year, we watched that every LAN party weekend, which was most weekends. Anytime somebody new would be there, we'd be like, hey, you have to watch this, and we'd make them watch Bastard. Like, it, it's not... Like, there's better anime out there. We were watching better anime at the time, but there's just something about Bastard. Like, that part, I think the... Because we'd always watch it dubbed, and there's the line about the clothes-eating slime that Steve Bloom, like, reads very campily and over-the-top that was... Uh, it was a thing that we quoted a whole whole lot back in the day. Hmm. I, I'd say for me, uh, so w- when Steven Yes me come up with a song, I was like, oh, I just rewatched Die Buster. That has a really great soundtrack. And then I remembered, because I looked back through his thing, Kohei Tanaka is part of why I am into robots in anime as much as I am today. Because there's this little show, um, I've talked about this before, this little show when I was, I think I was in second, third grade. I sat down in front of the TV screen at 5 p.m. And Peter Cullen told me, It's time for G Gundam. And the soundtrack to G Gundam, like, I, I, every other idea I had got wiped away because both my second choice that's kind of used the same way is the Burning Finger theme from G Gundam, which is great. But the shining finger theme is, has to be, cause it's one of those things I can recall. Like, it's just like, you feel so much drama and power as Domo's like this hand of mine, it burns with an awesome power. It compels me to defeat you. Yes, I did that in person at 2010 at a con. I was 15. Give me a little, give me a little slack. Uh, but that that is like so burnt in to me that I'm like, yeah, I feel bad if I looked up later and was like, I didn't say that because. I really need to revisit G Gundam too. Holy crap! <laughs> yeah, it's been a minute since I. I think the last time I watched it, uh, there weren't HD masters for it yet, mm-hmm. and I really want to go back and rewatch it, but in HD this time. For sure, especially now that again, it's been twenty years since I've seen it. I think I can safely say it's been twenty years, and two, um, that now that I've watched Giant Robo. There are so many other things I want to be looking for with Imagawa's involvement. Now, just be like, okay, what was what was Imagawa doing to pay the bills to pay that robo money? I want to watch that because I know I know it's good. 
I revisited a couple episodes a while ago. I know it's good. I know it's got the Gundam heart in it, despite the... Uh, it's very Macross 70. It's got the heart in it, despite being very different. Um, but I just... Oh, I'm, I have the ushy gushies about that. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, Tanaka's uh, theme for Soccer Awards, by the way, is my all-time favorite piece of music. Like, I listen to it most days when I'm getting ready for work. It just, like, gets me pumped to start my day. Mm-hmm. I, I, that, that does remind me, because I think of, uh, shouts to Sam from Anime Herald, um, who was just on the most recent, uh, episode of Radio Free Mercury. Um, um, well, I played a little bit of 2020 Soccer Wars, and in the beginning, when you're just walking around the theater, it plays this instrumental version, and I didn't even have any nostalgia for Soccer Wars, but imagining other people's nostalgia and how much, like, they'd hear that and they'd start crying, I started crying. Because it's like, it's last Soccer Wars game was a random PS2 game that came out over here, and that's like it? Like... Yeah, I still have not played the newest one, but I need to get on that. I was not really a PS4 person. Uh, for a while, a friend of mine lent me his when Death Stranding came out so I could play it. And then it became a uh, Project Eva machine, and I have not hooked it up since I moved out of my last apartment. But, I, uh, I've been meaning to play New Soccer Wars for a while now. Too busy with that 3DO, Rex. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that and i was holding out for a pc port for the longest time like i was like oh it's bound to happen they're not gonna like just leave this on ps4 they're not gonna and then it's been three years and it still has not left the ps4 i forgot to mention he did the music for planet with so i have my notes i credited i mentioned our zardian episode oh, it's true last time pmc and i talked about tanaka it was on that episode um but in our history Planet with History episode, we also talk about Tanaka, and PMC and I mention our favorite pieces. I mention Gravity Days, uh, one of the main themes from the first Gravity Rush. PMC, looking at the list, you mention uh, Roar, Imperial Fighting Troop from the 2019 Soccer Wars Yeah, that's that's the translated name for that same piece um, that that Rex mentioned. Specifically, the... because I didn't, you know, having only played that most recent Soccer Wars, I wasn't sure is like, is this the series theme or is this for this? And the answer was that this was, you know, a the series theme, but also b, you know, there were there were some updated flourishes. There's like a real like, there's like a real squeal to the the, the music in the in the 2019. I I'm calling it 2019 because that was the Japanese release. Obviously, it came out 2020 North America. Um, but so yeah, no, that that game was a lot of fun, and the music was very good as well. The uh- the mention you mentioned Gravity Rush, and now I'm thinking about. I think it was in Gravity the music in Gravity Rush too, the the bit where Cat is singing to distract the uh, the military guys, the da 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 with the jazz band. Oh, that that's oh that stuff's good. People play Gravity Rush too, please. Did that one come out on Vita at all, or was that just PS4? Just the first one came out on Vita. Uh, yeah, because I played that back when it was new and had a great time with it. Yeah, the Vita, the it was originally made for the Vita and with the Vita in mind, but like six people owned a Vita, so they had to port it to the PS4. Yeah. So back to Gunbuster, transitioning gracefully from the demise of the Vita. Tanaka's first impression of Gainax when he walked in the studio was that it seemed shady. 
No doubt the college dorm-esque environment, remember, Anna was known not to bathe regularly, was different from what he was used to. Furthermore, he was not impressed by the early drafts. When he joined the project, there were, the o- there were only general plot outlines for the first two episodes, and he couldn't quite grok what this show was. To him, it read like parody, which clashed with Anno's vision. Speaking of Anno, Tanaka initially had difficulty acclimating to his unique directorial sensibilities. When receiving guidance and direction, Anno would convey his desires through pop culture references, i.e. otaku shit, which wasn't really in Tanaka's wheelhouse. Quote, Mr. Anno is a man who is affected by Gundam and Yamato, so he only orders such music. It it's funny to me because he it, going on in that interview, um, Tanaka goes on to mention, and this is great if a Diebuster history ever ro- rolls around, that uh, when Diebuster popped up and he was doing the music for that, and that came back in um, to Gainax, Anna was like, "Oh, it didn't sound like Gundam." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm super curious about Die Buster. I have the the three DVDs, but I haven't popped them in yet. Oh man, when we get uh, a little bit later, I've got I got some stuff to say about those DVDs too. <laughs> I love those DVDs. I've gone through some of the liner notes. Um, I imagine Die Buster is going to get a discotheque release in the next five years. Maybe no, probably the next two to three years. That's my I'm, I'm that's my fully... theory. I'm fully expecting them to announce it either at the next uh, discotheque day uh, next week or uh, at Oticon. I have a feeling that will be an in-person Oticon announcement. Mm -hmm. But Tanaka grew alongside the project. His soundtrack changed to accommodate for the tonal shifts and evolved to meet the enlarged scope of the narrative. Even though the schedule was demanding, he looks back on the experience warmly. Quote, it was a time when I was thinking of quitting anime and going into the world of live action. Thanks to Gunbuster, end quote, I'm here paraphrasing here, Tanaka decided to remain in the mecha space. May we be all thankful for that. I Also, part of that interview, I really love how Tanaka talks about that Gunbuster is his dark history. Um, but that really, I, what I love about it is he talks about what he learned from it. Because he was used to just turning in compositions and not really interacting with the production team. But he gets together at the launch party for, like, I think it was the first volume. It wasn't specific um, in the document. Um, At the launch party, and he saw all the animators talking about what bits they worked on as they came on screen. And he started to get an idea what what it was like to work on a big collaborative team. And so from there, he made to, made an effort to be involved where he could, uh, specifically at voiceover recordings um, and other parts of production. And he talks a little bit how, and I can see this too, how the work and all those songs he did for Sakura Wars, probably a very much direct result of him hanging out with all the girls in the studio while they were recording their lines and all that stuff. It's funny that uh, Tanaka refers to it as his dark, like dark history. Yamaga mm-hmm. basically says the same thing about his experience in Gunbuster. I think he's just Yamaga's not really used to anime shit. I think some of it embarrasses him a bit, despite mm-hmm. the fact that there's the fa- there's that scene of sexual assault in Royal Space Force. <laughs> he basically mm-hmm. like when 
I imagine whenever he's talking about Gunbuster, he's like hiding his face. <laughs> mm. And I, I can see that too, because it's definitely the beginning of it. Like we said before, especially if you have that knowledge of Aim for the Ace and other things, it, it reads very, par- very, very parody. Yeah. Now, appropriately, Victor Music Industries, Tanaka's former employee or employer, and one of the sponsors of Gunbuster, handled the physical releases of Gunbuster's music. The first album, called Gunbuster Victory Manga Golden Special, came out on June 7, 1989. This 99-track disc includes music from the first four episodes, the final two episodes came out a month later, outtakes, and a radio drama. For Gunbuster aficionados craving some more physical media, you're in luck. This first volume is super easy to track down and super cheap to pick up. I think it may still be in print. You can snag a copy for less than 40 bucks. And you could probably snag a pirated copy up for even cheaper than that. <laughs> Though I don't know how big the market is for bootleg Gunbuster CDs. I don't know if it's even worth the effort to make them, to burn those discs. You, you know, so I I bet there is, and I only say this because when I was in Toronto uh, in 2013 for TFCon, I went into a uh, Japan uh, like a Japanese um, anime and manga store with figures and everything. Mm-hmm. Like it was in Toronto's Chinatown, I'm pretty sure. And I pick up what are a couple uh, Macross collections, and I later learned that if it was real, it would say Victor on it. Uh, these said Mia Records on it, so I'm just like, I still have those, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, the, these, this happens with JRPG soundtracks, too, so I'm not surprised in the least. <laughs> I feel like the market for JRPG star- soundtracks is still pretty warm. Like, I think there are a lot mm-hmm. more collectors out there, like, for a Final Fantasy VIII soundtrack compared to, like, a Gunbuster soundtrack. You know, maybe, but Gunbuster also, like, those a- those Amazon and Right Stuff rankings, uh, man, I could some see some people going. That show's great. I need to put that put that in my car while I'm driving. Where are the CDs though, or a vinyl? I should also note that when we talk about Victor, they're still around, but their names changed. I think they're called Flying Dog now, or Flying Something. Mm-hmm. Flying Dog is it? Yep, Flying Dog. Mm. They. Uh, I only know this because they've done so much Macross stuff that's burnt into my brain. Um, also, this is a digression because we were talking about um, Lunar and uh, the working designs came to mind. And I have to mention this because I know PMC yeah. and Steven will get a kick out of this. Um, so every time I heard you guys talking about Victor Ireland, I didn't realize it was a person and thought it was an Ireland branch of the Victor we're talking about right now. <laughs> oh, Vic, if you're listening, I hope you got a kick out of that. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you for that knowledge. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, man, we need to get Victor on the podcast. I don't even know why I'm saying Victor. Vic. We'd be very informal with him. Is is his name Flying Dog Ireland now? <laughs> it is not, as far as I know. <laughs> for for some video game fans, it is. <laughs> All right, so we, that's we talked about the first physical release. Next up, Gunbuster Ultra Music Collection. This one disc album came out in March of the following year. 
It has 26 tracks from the final set of episodes, plus two radio dramas. This soundtrack has been reprinted at least once in 1996, and while out of print, isn't too hard to come by. It's about the same price as the first CD. They had a lot of fun making the CD. The producers of the second soundtrack went out of their way to create a list of fake episode titles for an imagined 25-episode Monster of the Week TV version of Gunbuster, complete with air dates and kaiju names. This is where the cover art comes from, which features the titular Gunbuster facing off like with a dinosaur in downtown Tokyo. They really committed to the bid here. I want to note, I'm not sure how or if this reflects Okada's original treatment. I have a feeling it doesn't reflect it too much, because when Okada talked about his vision of a 26-episode version of Gunbuster, it didn't. It sounded a little less Monster of the Week than um, this fictional scenario. Uh, the developers of the PS2 game would take this idea and run with it. More on that in a future episode. Shoutouts to the Idion who translated all these titles. Do you all have a favorite episode title? Uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to post this list on Twitter, or at least link you to the Ideon's post online, because there's a lot of like fun stuff here. I really like that they noted that episode 12, the fictitious episode 12, has been removed for broadcast. <laughs> I'm sure it was just a funny joke, but I really want to know if there's like a... They came up with some sort of reason as to why it gives me uh Don's Island vibes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also really like the uh the episode title Jung's Betrayal. Because mm. I could picture that because I couldn't see uh Jung Freud uh betraying her fellow pilots. So I feel like that would be a fun episode to watch where they like think that she's like betraying them, but really she's like setting up some sort of surprise for them or something. So they have a they have a fun rivalry. They don't have a he's going to betray you and try to murder them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you go through these episode titles, your mind but can't but help run wild with the possibilities of like what if. There's a episode uh, where is I was just looking at it. Episode thirteen, top annihilated, the terrify the terrifying either life form. Um, it sounds like an episode of like a scenario for a Star Trek episode, but I'm like <laughs> I, I want to know more. I really I, need. I, I need to know about. Please, time enough for love with the regenerated space monster army. Do they not have? <laughs> if they regenerate, do they have enough time for love? Please tell me. Uh, I think that's actually the name of episode five for the real the near, real title for that too. Because there's a couple of the real ones in here too. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good point. point. I a real one, but it's probably the title of a fan fiction is Top Annihilated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's from a, a FromSoft game. That's an Urshihara hentai. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I uh, ooh, I need a breather after that one. Um, there's not one that specifically points out to me, but what I really love is I think of Ultraman openings right away because they're very much in the same style like one word uh with exclamation point and then the description with more exclamation points and i just with the kaiju mentioning because in every uh ultraman episode in most series they give the the episode title and then they show featuring this monster so um let's just go go here we go uh final gambit fly buster home run (laughs) 
featuring Warp Monster Volragrin. <laughs> like, stuff like that. Like it, Also, with that cover for the CD, I'm just like, y'all are tokusatsu dorks, and I love you. My goodness. Hats off to you. Uh, you, you you're my kind of dorks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that the cover rules because it's such a what if. Like, what if Gunbuster was in downtown Tokyo, right in front of Tokyo Tower, duking it out with some dope ass kaiju monster? Mm-hmm. What if so, Gunbuster was a dude in a suit, man? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's a great back of the box quote or a tag for the whole project. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, there's only just one other soundtrack. Uh, the sound collection of Gunbuster which came out on August 24th, 1994. This three-disc set includes, at just under 300 tracks, all the music from the OVA, the radio dramas, outtakes, karaoke songs, and a smattering of new material. This release is also out of print, going for upwards of $80 online. It's the rarest of the three. I assume it came out... um, I I assume the release was timed with the Laserdisc re-release, which also came out in 1994. Looking back, it's a damn shame we never got like a true arrangement album because that would whip. Some of these pieces are arranged. I was listening to quite a bit of the second album, and it doesn't. Those pieces sound a little oomphed up compared to what we got in the OVA. But I want like a a real off the wall experimental take. Like give me like mm-hmm. ten Tanaka tracks that he went back and recomposed. Um, maybe like with a certain theme in mind. Give me my acid jazz version. I was about Gunbuster. to say that. I was like, give me, give me, what's the yeah. name of that album? The End of Time? Brink of Time, I think. Brink of Time, yeah, the Chrono Trigger acid jazz album. Yeah, it's about to say all of the uh, arrangement albums from around that time period, they have to have an acid jazz, they have to have a progressive rock song, and they have to have like a Kenny G, like smooth jazz, Cassio Yeah, you get the, the Zenogar's Creed on. album. <laughs> I love the cover of the Brink of Time, the breakfast. Oh, it's classic. classic. Oh, yeah. man. Oh, that would look great as a vinyl and just put it on my wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Get Ooh. get on it, Square Enix. Those Trigun albums come to mind, too. Oh, yeah. boy. Without further ado, let's talk a bit about the production of Gunbuster. Full disclosure, information in English on what it was like to be in the trenches on Gunbuster is minimal, especially when compared with other Gynax projects. But we do know a few things. Right off the bat, I'd like to acknowledge a contradiction that exists in the official record. In the Notenki memoirs, Takeda says production on Gunbuster was slow to start due to Bandai prioritizing the pat labor of the early days OVA, which was also funding. According to Tanaka, or excuse me, according to Takeda, Gunbuster was relegated to backburner status. However, Minoru Takashi, a producer at Bandai Visual, remembers it differently. Quote, There were only six or seven people in the video department, so we didn't have competitions of projects nor multiple production lines. I concentrated only on my job, so it's not true that Gunbuster was put on hold due to pat labor. 
end quote. Make of that what you will, but it just goes to show how crowded the OVA market was getting by the end of the 80s. When production finally did kick into gear, whenever exactly that was, Gynax certainly had their work cut out for them. Takeda remembers that the studio became increasingly cramped, and so Gynax, along with General Products, moved back to the Kichijoji Higashi studio where, where it had earlier produced Royal Space Force. Thankfully, this studio was three times as large, giving the staff plenty of room to grow. All the while, Anno threw himself headfirst into the work. For the first episode, he stuck close to Okada and Yamaga's script, but as the production cycle lengthened, he began to diverge and took some creative risk with the source material. For example, he famously filmed the final episode in black and white, which, paradoxically you might think, cost the studio more money. When asked about it later, Anno remarked, quote, When you have color, you have extra dimension in the way of the sense of scale we wanted to portray. Also, no one had ever done it before. End quote. Even a casual observer could tell. Anno felt renewed and revitalized. Directing was his calling. His course was set. Since we alluded to Anno's future, it's worth pointing out that Gunbuster takes place in the year 2015, among other years, but it partly takes place in 2015. This year would prove to be significant for Anno as an artist. For example, Evangelion begins in the year 2015 when the first angel attacks Tokyo 3. When asked about this, Anno remarked, quote, the date is from an old show I liked as a kid, and it was also the year in which Tetsuan Adam took place. End quote. Classic Anno. It also probably felt futuristic, but not too far in the future, like when Orwell um, in 1948 titled his book 1984. The future, but not too far in the future. It gives that bit of relatability. Mm-hmm. I- I'm curious, since, since we were all alive in the year 2015... Where were you in 2015 while Noriko was at school in Okinawa? Not podcasting, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, that was actually the year I went back to college. And I wound up, uh, I f- finished my bachelor's finally uh, right at the end of 2019, right before the pandemic started. And it was funny, like the whole time I was like, I start went back to college uh I was thinking a lot, a lot more about Ava and stuff. I was like, huh, it'd be really funny if, like, some sort of Evangelion apocalypse happened, and I had been spending, like, my last couple of years, like, cramming cramming classes and not having much of a life. And then, of course, right as soon as I graduate and enter the non-food service job market, that's when everything shuts down. I feel you. We, I, how uh, many of you were on Twitter in 2015? Oh, I was on I Twitter, was, yeah. Yeah. I was barely using it, but I I had one, and I mostly uh, tweeted at Hideo Kojima, who more than likely never saw them. My tweets. Mm-hmm. He's. We should rope. He, we should have brought him on this recording. He's in uh, East Village right now, in New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ask him about licorice recoil. <laughs> oh, I bring him on to talk about one thing and one thing only: his love for Pat Labor too. There we go. Mm-hmm. Get him and Oshi on the pod. I, I heard there was this one guy who, I forget whether it was the first one or the second one, who was called it a modern Prometheus, perhaps? 
<laughs> My mind's blank after that, Coop. <laughs> I got you good. Pop culture references aside, Gunbuster imagines a future Earth on the brink of destruction. A swarm of insectoid aliens has entered our galaxy and are bent on humanity's eradication. It's up to the last remaining space fleet and a group of plucky pilots to repel the invasion and save humanity. To see this story through, Gynax enlisted the aid of Studio Fantasia and a team of Korean animators to complete the project on schedule. Even though the production was chaotic and fraught with difficulties, it eventually bore fruit. In Japan, Gunbuster was released over a 10-month span collected in three volumes. The first VHS tape hit shelves on October 7, 1988. The last on July 7, 1989. Some critics saw Gunbuster as a reaction to the disappointing sales generated at the box office for Royal Space Force. If that was the case, it certainly didn't disappoint. However, that didn't mean Gynax was suddenly rich. Smartly, Bandai made sure to lock up the merchandising rights to Gunbuster. While the three VHS, VHS tapes sold well, this was far from a windfall for Gynax. Due to contractual obligations, Bandai and Victor Music Industries, the two investors on the project, benefited the most financially. Gynax would make the same mistake a year later when they partnered with Toho to finance Nadia, the, uh, a 39-episode television series that aired on NHK. As Mark Harrison explains, it was Toho, not Gynax, who had most of the rights and reaped all the merchandising profits from the show and the toys. End quote. However, this would change with Evangelion, which they retained the licensing rights of, and they licensed Ava to hell and back again. Smartly. And then there was some tax evasion and tax fraud. We'll get into that on a future episode. Got to have a little tax for it. Come on now. Um, because I don't know where else I could slot Star Wars into this episode, and since we mentioned it so much in the first history, that was one of the smartest things George Lucas ever did, was retaining the licensing rights to Star Wars. Yeah. And predictably, Bandai made sure to exercise those rights, releasing a glut of Gunbuster-related merchandise over the years. This includes, but is not limited to, trading cards, manga collections, video game guides. Bandai also had licensing rights over Gunbuster and partnered with other companies to produce additional material. We're going to dedicate an entire episode to Gunbuster-related literature, but I want to give you a quick overview. Kaibuncha published two novels written by Ino Fumihiko, adapting all six episodes of the OVA in 1989. That same year... Top Gunbuster, a short story prequel that takes place on the Luxion, came out. It was originally published in Cyber Comics, a manga magazine produced by Bandai and for a time run by General Products. In 2002, there was another prequel short story written by Mikumo Gakuto, which was published in Sci-Fi Japan, 
This one follows Coach after the destruction of the Lucian. There's no direct relation between this short story and the other short story. Fortunately, both of these novels and both of these short stories have been translated into English by the Idion, who will be joining us on future episodes to chat about their work. I'm I, I got to say, whenever we talk about one of the Edeon's um, translations, can we call it Invocation? Mm, very nice. <laughs> now, I'm pulling the Gunbuster literature information from their website. Theoretically, there could be more shorts. There's no other novels, but there could be more short stories out there. There's there's a Zardion novelization out there. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Not translated, unfortunately. Criminal. Of course, there were Gunbuster video games. We'll also be dedicating episode to this topic, but I'll give a quick rundown. The first game was done in-house at Gynax. The third cybernetic high school game, their erotic quiz game series. (laughs) Be warned if you search for that online. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's also the one though there's a uh, image that was posted around the internet a lot in the late 2010s of uh jung freud it mostly made it around like uh leftist non-anime adjacent uh twitter and tumblr circles mm. um of jung with the uh the soviet union flag in the background mm-hmm. um, I know that one that's mm-hmm. where that game that game's where that comes from it's also where the Great Gunbuster, a Gunbuster upgraded model, appears, and it's a super sick design. I posted on Mecha Day a while back. It, it, it appears in some related manga side stories as well, but it's a cool design. There's a, has a cape. Rules. Oh, totally. Shoutouts to Russell. I feel like whenever I think of mechs wearing clothing, Russell's had a few great tweets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm also thinking of that one episode of Macross where Max puts dresses his Valkyrie up in Zentradi clothing so he can hide amongst them while he's running on his ship to save everybody else. Macross is great. <laughs> I would love if this game got translated in English so I could I would stream it and I would play the quiz segments with other leftist anime critics to see how much soviet trivia they can get right or how accurate the game is on historical topics that that also so i'm thinking you mentioned it like that also sounds like a very hazel core thing to do <laughs> yeah yeah you you can play it on uh, you could play it easily online it's just that it's all in japanese mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think all three cybernetic high school games have remained untranslated i'd give them a shot if uh, any of them came out in English. Mm-hmm. Me too. I'm going to try to play them anyway before the simulator episode. We'll see how that goes. That's true. <laughs> I, I'll tell my wife it's for research. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing, you d- degenerate? <laughs> I was watching Gunbuster. I had Gunbuster playing in the background today, and my parents were stopping by. I was like, I, I don't want to turn this off, but I hope they don't walk in at a inappropriate time. My dad's like, "What well, you, you fucking pervert? What are you, what are you watching this shit for?" <laughs> Subsequently, Bandai licensed out the brand to River Hill Soft to develop two digital comic games for the PC Engine, adapting the events of the game. 
These I would also play to completion. I'm, I plan to check them out for the simulator episode. They're super cheap to pick up online. Um, the art is super cool. Hopefully, I'll have my Polymega by the time I, uh, these come out. Or uh, we, I have to cover these for the podcast um, because it would be a great way to test out the machine. Did you actually get a shipping notice for a Polymega? No. I'm just basing this on a, like a, a tweet they sent out three months ago. Fingers oh. crossed. So, so you mean uh, in two years. Gotcha. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> and lastly, in 2005, the Shade Inc. developed PS2 game came out, which reimagines the events of the show using those fake episode titles as a jumping off point. So, Rex, you're going to be on this episode. Do you have any quick takes on any of these games? You've played a bit of the PS2 game, right? Yeah, I've played... Like, I haven't gotten too, too far into it. Most of my playtime with it has been making sure it works on various uh, things I can play PS2 games on. Mm. I've played, uh, I guess, a fair amount of it at this point. It's... The aesthetic, first of all, is completely on point. Uh, Like we were talking about earlier, where, like, it's the novelty of seeing them rendered with these sixth-generation 3D graphics. They do... It's one of those games where they do the whole intro with those uh, 3D CG designs, and it looks badass. The game itself is actually like pretty neat to play. Yeah, if there's one I could get in English, if I, if I could like uh, have one genie wish, it would be this one. I wouldn't be surprised, because there's been so many like PS1, Saturn, and PS2 era games getting... Uh, fan translated like the last couple years i would not be shocked if this gets one eventually especially now that uh gunbusters big in the anime fandom again mm-hmm. bro who's the team like, what's the team picking it up yeah what's the team that's doing the second my summer vacation game on ps2 they're doing great work on that translation oh yeah i believe that's uh hilltop, Hil- hilltop did, yeah uh, racing again mm. yeah because there's like a loose group of like people that work on all of those projects like uh Hilltop, uh, I'm going to butcher some names probably, Snowy Aria, who does a lot of 3DO stuff, also works on a lot of this PS1, PS2 translations. They all work together. Corrodigan uh, and Burnt Ends, who announced uh, between the release of the last episode and this one, announced uh, Do You Remember Love PS1 translation? Hell yeah. That they're doing as a dub mm-hmm. featuring John oh, Lennon right. from uh, Digital Foundry. That is dope. Oh. And that's oh. it. It's This is the four games. Unfortunately. There is a PS1 Mahjong game which features some Gunbuster characters. Yes, and I can't believe I forgot about it because I made a mental note to mention that. So uh, it's on PS1 and Saturn, and then they did a PC Port, I think a year or two later, I wrote about it on my blog forever ago, and I'm revisiting all of those articles and like fleshing them out more. Um, so the Mahjong game, it's uh, Ava and Good Friends is the title of the game. Um, who are the good friends who least, show up? <laughs> the good friends that who show up are uh, basically every main character from Gunbuster and every main character and some side characters from uh, Nadia, the Secret of Blue Water. Okay. And they're all interacting with characters from Ava. Uh, the main characters of each one have uh, their own story mode. And let me real quick pull up because I wrote about these. I can just very easily pull up because there is a, I believe Noriko has her own story mode. 
um, Jung tells her about this big uh, inter-universe Mahjong tournament, and uh, Noriko has a dream about uh, Smith Torin, who is dead in this universe. Um, she enters it, and but she's also using the tournament to uh, find a new boyfriend to replace Smith Torin, and uh, winds up falling in love with uh, Jean from Nadia after uh, some failed dates with Shinji, Ikari, and Toji. And Nadia gets uh, real jelly about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, leave. I, I mean, I love Shinji. Shinji is me, but leave, leave Shinji at the curb, Noriko. You could do better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of uh, her being in a relationship with John from Nadia. It, it's amusing. I need to play. I need to fucking play Mahjong at least once. Yeah. So. Going back to the fan translations, um, I'm surprised this one hasn't gotten one yet. Uh, Snowy Aria, who I mentioned a little bit ago, uh, recently translated an anime Mahjong game for the 3DO that I have also not played yet, because it doesn't run on the ODE. I have to burn it to a disc, and I don't know where all my blank discs went, but I had a shitload of them that I bought like six months ago. That's such a wreck statement right there. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> yeah, like I've got like 150 something like very high-end discs that I paid like oh my god, 75 on Amazon for, because they're a very specific disc that's supposed to like work well with the 3DO, but I wound up mostly using them for PS1 games after mm-hmm. I, uh, Backup owned uh, Slim PS2 to play PS1 backups, so I could play Racing Lagoon. Hell yeah! Yes. PMC, you were about to drop a bombshell about Mahjong. I was just saying Mahjong is not a place of honor. I would not learn Mahjong. <laughs> I don't care how many <laughs> dank Mahjong games there are on PS1 Saturn. You will not fool me. There are literally scores, if not hundreds. There is another guy on Twitter. I cannot remember his ad, um, but his name is William, uh, one of my Twitter mutuals, who's putting together a giant piece on uh, 32-bit Mahjong games, if I remember correctly. I'm greatly looking forward to. I have a question for you, PMC. Since you know many Yakuza speedrunners, is there a Mahjong percent? In any of those games that you're aware of? So I think in a lot of those games, when it comes to all sub-stories or 100% runs, um, they're typically able to abuse RNG to just sort of do some inputs and not really actually understand the game, is I think mm-hmm. I think what usually happens. Um, no any percent runs in, involve Mahjong. Uh, there is some gambling in some uh, runs. I think 3 and 4 have some important gambling. But uh, no, they, I don't think they have to deal with Mahjong. I, as far as I know, the Yakuza speedrunners I know do not know how to play Mahjong. <laughs> okay, gotcha. I was about to say, I know people who played Yakuza just to learn Mahjong. Because mm. they were like always fascinated with it and didn't touch anything else. And also, real quick, and then we can move on to Mahjong. There was a sequel to Ava and Good Friends that I completely forgot about called Stripping Instrumentality Project. Which oh. is Ava and Good Friends, but a full-on H game direct developed internally at Gynax for PC, where they took uh, Ava and Good Friends, cut all of the story mode content out, and replaced it with uh, naked images of the entire cast, including Coach. <laughs> oh, it, this is racy. It's uploaded to the internet in an archive. I was about to say uh, there is, I don't know if it's on Internet Archive, 
But uh, one of the only times I've actually seen eHentai used for hentai, because a lot of people use it to upload art books and stuff for some reason, which you could just upload to archive.org. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> but uh, the entire art book for Shinji and Good Friends, which does include the stripping instrumentality uh, project art and a bunch of other like tangentially related art that is up there. If you don't want to pay like two hundred dollars for the art book, which has some really, it has some like really good uh, exclusive art from a bunch of uh, big guy names at the time. Most of it's Satomoto art. Mm-hmm. Rex, can you say the name of that second game just one more time for me, please? <laughs> Stripping Instrumentality Project. I-, I love that it abbreviates to SIP. That's so good. <laughs> You know, fuck capitalism, but this is what you get when you don't retain the licensing rights. When you give Gynax full control over the licensing rights, you get sick shit. <laughs> oh, hey, <laughs> boss. Uh, what am really I doing? It's funny, too, because when, oh. when I was first getting into uh, Gynax and anime in general, because um, New Type had been pushing, like I mentioned it last episode, I got super, super into it when New Type USA first started getting published. And New Type was pushing Gynax super hard. So, of course, I went online to look up more about their work and everything. And they had an English facing website, which I've, uh, I don't think it exists anymore, but you can go on Wayback Machine and see all sorts of different variations of their English uh, website over the years. Um, of course, front and center. So, we did, we only had dial up and we only had one phone line in my parents' house growing up. Um, so I would do most of this, uh, like reading about anime and stuff at friends' houses and my dad's cousin's ranch in the middle of the hill country of Texas, which for some reason had faster internet than my parents' house. Mm. So of course I'm like, I'm going to go read about this company Gynax that I just found out about that I've seen like a few of their things. And then like front and center on their website, like the very first thing I pull up is a stripping instrumentality project. <laughs> And there is a very strict, like, no porn rule on uh, my dad's cousin's ranch computer. And I was like, oh, crap, I, I, I'm not going to look at this anymore. They, they are a porn company and backed out, deleted the history, and the rest is history. <laughs> then you burnt down the house. Yeah! <laughs> PMC, oh. you were just about to deploy a zinger. Oh, I was just saying, like, hey, boss, uh, I'm working on something. What is it? Oh, it's... um. Yeah, it's it's totally for the company. Absolutely. We'll ship it. <laughs> you know, the talk of that and also your story, Rex, reminds me of how I discovered what hentai was, and I blame G4, because on Cinematech, uh, they, there was one time, because my dad worked at a bar, owned a bar late nights, and sometimes I'd be hanging out with him before we'd go into Detroit to see some family. Um, and he just leave that. I just watched whatever on his satellite TV while he was gone. And Cinematech was all like showing, like at the one. I'll name it here. The one thing it showed that that I was like, "What's this?" And it was all blurred out. It was called "Do You Like Horny Bunnies?" And I'm like, "What?" And I didn't remember what the name was. And then like later on, I Googled it, and I was way too young to be Googling this. And I was like. Oh, Wikipedia says this thing is called hentai. Huh. Yeah. Cinematech was such a vibe. What was the show where they have those original CG shorts? Hmm. 
Oh. Rex, I'm surprised you don't know that. Well, you you know it, but you don't know the name. Yeah, I remember that show. I don't yeah, remember. I didn't have G4 at my house. I had to go over to friends' houses and watch it. So when I did, we'd have G4 on. G4 Anime Network is uh, some of my friends. We were at Pilot City for Anime Network, so we had access to that. Um, but we'd have that on the background. That one would come on like quite a bit. Yeah. I remember that very vividly in the cheat code show that I also can't remember the name mm-hmm. of. Something I love about Cinematech, though, because I remember... I think it was an interview with Jeff Gertzman talking about the GameSpot days. There was one time where they just lit the GameSpot guys uh, and cut together a bunch of Cinematechs. And they were just <laughs> like, we're just going to throw whatever the fuck in here. Who cares? And I'm just like, okay, this is probably this. The, 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 how I discovered what hentai is might be Jeff Gertzman's fault. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So back to Gunbuster. Surprisingly. There's been a lot less gunbuster manga than one would expect. In the early 90s, there were a few manga anthologies with some gunbuster one-offs and such. And that was it for a while. That is, until 2010, when a manga adaptation of the OVA began serialization in Young Ace. Illustrated by Kabocha, with some mechanical design work by Hajime Kitoke, this retelling ran for 30 chapters over two and a half years... It was later collected in five Tonkabon volumes. Unfortunately, this hasn't received an English translation, official or otherwise. I don't imagine it'll ever be picked up, but it would be a cool get. It just probably wouldn't sell all that great. Obviously, there has been a ton of Gunbuster-related merch released in the three and a half decades since its debut. Model kits, action figures, calendars, keychains, art books, t-shirts, even a dedicated pachinko machine. We don't have enough time to talk about it all, and even if we did, it would not make for compelling podcasting material, but I want to highlight one book release, the Collection of Gunbuster Complete Art Book. This encyclopedic tome, which collects a bunch of production material from both Gunbuster and Diebuster, recently received a reprint. Now, Coop, you have a copy of this. Tell us about it. Yes, so if you are a dork who loves Gunbuster Buster and a little bit of like production sites especially if uh, if you're a dork like me who doesn't quite know Japanese but you grab out John Google and look on through it um, it's an amazing book um, uh, starting on like the, the interviews which we've been mentioning a bunch here are great and they have some wonderful insight there's talks with Satomoto, Mikimoto Kohei Tanaka some of the gentlemen who worked on the novelizations you all be, be talking about in the future here. Um, some really great stuff, like a lot of really great little footnotes about things in, in addition to like really detailed production summary stuff on uh, each episode, talking about the process. Um, a lot of good stuff for both Gunbuster and Diebuster and all its associated material. If you love Gunbuster, check it out. Um, I want to say too, the concept art is really fantastic. I love all the little footnotes on it. There's a lot of little things you can pick up that go, oh, yeah, these these dorks. If you didn't know it already, these dorks love Ultraman because there's a lot of building designs where they say, oh, this is totally not this building from this Ultraman. But yeah, this isn't that building from that Ultraman. What are you talking about? This isn't from Thunderbirds. What are you, ta- what are you talking about? A lot of that stuff I really love. And also, when I first got the book, uh, a lot of the early 
production art of like Noriko interfacing in the cockpit of the Gunbuster and a lot of that early stuff looks fantastic. Um, honestly, the interfacing stuff, I remember sending a, P- a photo of the PMC when I got it. I was just like, all this interface stuff in here, PMC's just like, oh boy, woo Nelly. <laughs> it's good. I, I really enjoy this good. book. I can confirm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also blame Russell Latshaw because he told me about this book coming back out again uh, last year in 21. No, last year wasn't 21. What is time? Time dilation, Stephen. Last year in 22. Yeah, what is? What is? Um, the, t- the timeless decade, as we'll call it. Uh, but, yeah, Russell uh, suggested to me in 22. I picked it up. It's an amazing book. The, it, honestly, this is one of those books, uh, I doubt it, I would really love to see uh, official professional translation of this. I don't know if sales of things would justify doing this because it's like also a book from 2012. So there's a lot of, a lot of things you got to consider with that. They'd also have to look at the information that's presented and maybe make a, a a little uh, tweaks here and there to it. But it's a great book if you love Gunbuster. I can recommend it if you can find it for a good price. Arguably, one of Gus Gunbuster's strengths is its length. At six episodes, it never overstays its welcome. It goes out as strongly, if not stronger, than it started. However, Gynax did produce some additional animated content in the form of the Gunbuster Science Lessons. As a little something for those fans who paid a premium yen for those VHS tapes, Gynax included extra shorts featuring chibi versions of Amano and Noriko, and occasionally Coach, lecturing about fakey fake science. Gynax made four of these shorts for the original VHS release. Now, Coop, I think it's fair to say you have a special relationship with these shorts. Visually, you modeled your Macross panel, which you presented with Russell at Otakon 2022, after them. So tell us a bit about that. I think for me, when it comes to the science lessons, because I, I saw it, I think it was, again, Gunbuster is a very a, a formative anime for me as a quote-unquote adult, I guess now. Um, going from young adulthood into whatever stage of adulthood I am now. I, I'm almost 30 and people keep on telling me, well, it's young. Um, yeah, but our so listeners would say you're geriatric. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I am. I don't have a TikTok, so that's probably a good a good uh, point of my geriatricity. I don't know if that's an actually a word, but we're rolling with it. Um, but yeah, I I was really I loved how the science lessons have a great uh, like they didn't have to do it, but it's like a tongue in cheek way of being like we're gonna explain all our science bullshit, our hard science sci fi bullshit, and do it in a tongue in cheek way that's not too serious. Um, and then when it came time to do a panel, I was like, let me call up my friend Tama to do some chibis 
And I'm gonna. I have a Mac, so this will be easy to make up because that's obviously a Mac screen they were using for the original four. Um, and make this up because I, I. It's. I don't know, man. It's just a really striking visual, and not. You don't really see things like that too terribly much. Like, uh, also, I have a big love for like Windows ninety five and all that. Like, shouts to my man Clippy. Um, but yeah, so. It has to do a lot of, at least for me, with it being special to me, it has to do a lot with, it was, it came to me at a very impressionable time, I guess. Yeah, I really like the science lessons, because it's a really creative way of info dumping stuff that I feel like a lot of other uh, screenwriters and directors and studios would try to haphazardly insert into the Mm. episodes themselves. I've always been a big fan of showing and not telling, which is part of why I like Gynax and directors like David Lynch so much, because they don't have to explain how all the cool shit works. It just is there, and you just take it at face value and vibe with it. And the science lessons are there if you need that extra information, and they do it in a much more fun way than just having people talk at the screen for a while. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, like, I think the thing that always sticks out to me about the science lessons is how they talk about how the final ship, the Eltrion, it doesn't use propulsion engines anymore or anything like that. It uses espers and dolphins to rewrite the math around it so it can move through space! That's stupid, and I love it! Yeah, 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 it's so fucking wild. And that led fans of Star Trek to look through the diagrams of the Enterprise D to see where the room that they kept all the fucking dolphins in. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you watch Lower Decks, there's a bit like of Boimler interacting with said dolphins, which they I guess, created for the show. I still need to watch that. I keep hearing amazing things about it. You'd like it a lot. That's the new Trek thing I really want to see more than anything else. That and Strange New Worlds. Discovery is not bad, but mm-hmm. those two are the cream of the crop. In 1994, to commemorate and promote the Laserdisc release, Gynax produced two additional science lessons, bringing the total up to six. It's worth pointing out that these were the directorial debut of Kazuya Suramaki, one of Ano's mentees who would go on to direct Fully Cooley and Die Buster and a whole bunch of other stuff. Also, this batch right here, these two... They're my favorite. The energy on these two episodes is very good. I laughed out loud several times. Coach in these two episodes kills it. Because I want to say in these last two, if I remember correctly, um, or maybe it was the first round, I read something about how when Noriko talks about the planets and she's cosplaying as the Sailor Scouts, that was technically the first time uh, Sailor Scouts had kind of appeared in animation, I, I could be totally wrong on this because I'm not a Mooney. Huh. Um, yeah, no, I believe but... that's that's correct. Uh, I watched that one uh, two nights ago, actually. Mm-hmm. When I rewatched Gunbuster again. It's the I... uh, sixth science lesson, I believe. Mm-hmm. But that's <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, as rewatching them this morning, I'm I'm very tempted to do a mini episode just on the science lessons because I had that much fun with them. Mm-hmm. I want to rewatch the mini Pato and to see if they hold, like how they compare, which ones are better. As someone who's watched it recently, 
because uh, I, I very recently I okay I'm like in the middle of Pat Liber TV, but I've watched most of everything else. Um, um, what I liked about the mini Pato stuff is I, the aesthetic. I think is what keeps that going. And if you know those characters, that's what makes mini Pato work. If you don't have that connection as much not as much and i think gunbuster it's it's enough face value that you don't necessarily need the co- the connection as much cuz it's it's even less self serious like uh mini pato is high effort uh uh not serious and this is there's effort but it's not taken itself super seriously either yeah oshi director though is like yeah i don't want to i don't want to direct pat labor 3 but I, this I'll, i have this idea for mini pato now, Discotech uh, included all six of these shorts dubbed, which was shocking when I found that mm-hmm. out on the recent Blu-ray release. Um, these last two came out uh, on the Laserdisc. Like, speaking of the Laserdisc, Mikimoto drew some new artwork of the characters, which is pretty rad. <laughs> this version of Coach bears an uncanny resemblance to Tommy Wiseau. It's not Coach. No. <laughs> no offense to Tommy Wiseau. I love him. But this isn't Coach at his most uh, sexy. <laughs> but that's not he all. Needs more oh. belts on him. That's true. Yeah, uh, I was just gonna say he needs more belts on him than it'll really be Tommy Wiseau. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's not all. In 2012, Gynax made two final science lesson shorts, seven and eight, which were included on the first Blu-ray release. Notably, these were animated in HD and in a 16 by 9 aspect ratio, which differentiates them from the predecessors. However, this final set of shorts was not included on the Discotech Blu-ray. I have two questions for you all. Do we know who worked on these? <laughs> I've, by 2012, Gynax had been fucking drained of all talent. I think only Yamaga was left. And he wasn't doing these shorts. Yeah, I have no idea... I don't know if they ever like actually released like a credits list for them. Yeah. If they had been on the discotheque release, I feel like they would have dredged that up. And like, I kind of feel like may- maybe some studio trigger people. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I got those kind of vibes from it, but that might explain why they weren't included on the discotheque release. That's my follow-up question here. I really wish these were dubbed. I, w- I would want the complete eight episodes. Mm-hmm. As we'll talk about, there's some weird omissions from the Discotech Blu-ray. Yeah. I'd love to know what happened behind the scenes there. We'll talk about that. Actually, yeah, just a minute, actually. I would be remiss not to point out that Gynax also made three mini-films, which were included on the original Japanese DVD release. The first one is a photo album-esque snapshot of a day in the life of students at the Okinawa High School Academy for Girls Military Academy. The second is an extra and quick glimpse of the Battle of Halley's Comet. Both of these are included on the recent Discotech release, undubbed. However, there is a third mini-film about the production of the Sizzler Mecca, which for whatever reason isn't on the Blu-ray, which is a shame. All three of these shorts have a real original animated content for a Sega Saturn video game vibe. That's, that's a Rex-ass sentence if ever there was one. <laughs> they look like the Blue Destiny Blue mm-hmm. Destiny PMC had animated 
material, right? A little bit, yeah. Not not too much. There's uh, maybe I'm thinking of Giren's Greed. I think I am. That had the Stardust Memory Team made original animation for something, some Sega Saturn game. It, it kind of also reminds me of the Ghost in the Shell PS1 a little bit. Now that you mention it, yes, yes, so much that. Mm-hmm. What a good. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Mini Pato too, because I didn't realize this until Russell Latshaw shouts to brain powered evangelist Russell Latshaw that it's Shigeru Chiba yelling and screaming about the Sizzlers, which is great <laughs> considering mm. what, what is uh, what was his na- uh, Shige I think is his character's name in uh, Pat Liber, the mechanic dude. It's been too long for me. It's all good, um, but having. Uh, Having the mechanic from Pat Liber shout at you about Gumbuster robots is pretty good. <laughs> Did uh, Pioneer dub those? I have the Wasted 13 DVD, and there's a separate DVD in that collection for Mini Pato, but I haven't actually watched it yet. I don't know. That's a good question. I didn't see any, any of those options. I don't think... I don't know... Well, I watched it all in Japanese, so I didn't really check for it, but I don't know if that option was in the Made in Japan set either um it looks like i googled it real quick because i couldn't remember it uh was dubbed i had a feeling it was that's a nice set obviously uh, they were um inspired by the bondi visual release of pot labor one and two but that's a cool set too and Mm -hmm. whenever i search wasted 13 which has happened more often than you think after i wrote that episode the walmart it's 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 still selling on walmart's website for like 11 bucks and that always pops up whenever i do a google search for the third pot labor movie I was going to say Right Stuff has had it in its clearance section for a minute, too. And every time they do a extra sale, like, they mark down the clearance stuff even more. Oh, man, how much did I get that set for a couple months ago? It was, like, three bucks. So yeah. if you want Anyone's... that set, keep an eye on that. I... Yeah, if anyone's fancy, do it. Set. Yeah. Hey, for three bucks, Wasted 13 is a pretty neat movie. I, uh... It's got its issues, for sure. I think the biggest issue uh, with it is I don't think it necessarily needed the Pat Liber cast in there. It would have been better as its own thing, I, th- I feel. But hey, it, it's, it's, it needed a little work. But I, I enjoyed it for what it was more than anything. I think the biggest issue with it is most people find it boring. But if you've ever seen an Oshi film, I, I, don't, I don't know, what would you expect? Uh, like, okay, so controversial take. I was more enthused by Wasted 13 than uh, Pat Labor 2 after a while, because at a certain point, Pat Labor 2 gets like, okay, we know what you're talking about. You've had like five conversations that gone on for 20 minutes in a row here. It's it's time to start doing shit, please. <laughs> yeah, I will say this about Pat Labor 2, because I like it a lot, but it's been a while since I've watched it. All the people that I know who are that's their favorite one aren't really people who are super into anime but mm-hmm. i have noticed a strange correlation they are people who are super into the work of michael mann for some reason oh. <laughs> that i don't, know, I don't that. know why there is that overlap yeah like has rob zachney watched pat labor too <laughs> <laughs> he'd, he'd love it now interestingly gynax was in no rush to release a compilation film of gunbuster this is something studios, especially Sunrise, did and do to recoup production costs and make a little extra yen. 
Over 15 years would pass before Gainax released a theatrical version of Gunbuster. During the production of Die Buster, right before the studio would see a mass exodus of talent, Gainax recut both OVAs into condensed theatrical versions. Called Gunbuster vs. Die Buster, aim for the top, the Gatai movie, this double feature hit theaters on October 1st, 2006. As far as I know, both Gunbuster the movie and Die Buster the movie feature no new animation. Gunbuster definitely doesn't. However, it does feature enhanced audio and redubbed lines. In fact, Gynax brought back the entire cast to re-record their dialogue. Gunbuster the movie clocks in at 95 minutes. It's connected to its sequel with a musical intermission, which is just an Evangelion-ass timer that counts down from five minutes as Gunbuster music plays, which, if you're Anno-pilled, is super cool. Mm. Rex, you have some, some thoughts on this release, don't you? Yeah, I skimmed through it over the weekend uh to prep for this episode um i used to be very lukewarm towards uh gunbuster the movie so to put it in perspective the first time i watched gunbuster was around 2012 when the japanese blu-ray came out that was the first time i had watched it like period and then i watched the movie i rewatched it once in between uh watching the movie my first viewing of it, but it was probably around 2015, 2016. Then I watched the movie 2017, and I thought it was pretty mid. I was like, they, they cut out a lot of stuff. This yeah, it sucks. Uh, I've rewatched the OVA series like three times uh, since the Blu-ray came out, and I skimmed through Gunbuster the movie this past uh, Friday night, and I uh, honestly, I don't think it's that bad. Um, now, I, I wouldn't recommend it to if I somebody asked me to recommend them either watch the OVA or watch the movie. Of course, I'd say the OVA, but it's the choices that they made in condensing it into ninety five minutes. I feel were actually like pretty decent. Um, episode six is in the entirety of episode six is in there and not cut at all. So that's the important stuff. I feel like everything else is just building up into a more. They, they eliminate a lot of the subplots and just build up towards episode six. And I think it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you were to show Gunbuster the movie to like a friend who's not real into anime, you, sh- you show them Pat Labor 2, and then you'd fire up Gunbuster the movie. Watching Gunbuster the OVA in one sitting doesn't do its do the experience any favors. It's just a little too much. But Gunbuster the movie would be perfect for like a sit-down viewing. I, yeah, I'm also kind of two, and then be like, okay, now we can watch something that uh, you like and watch Collateral. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm also really curious too how that changes the flow because I'd imagine if you put it into a movie version, you're cutting out a lot of the the parody esque bits and just kind of bringing it down to brass taxes of what exactly Gumbuster itself is. So that makes... Hey, if that goes on sale, maybe I'll pick it up and see what's going on with that. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about the Sentai release a bit later, but Sentai was very quick after the discotheque announcement two years ago to get that back into circulation. Mm-hmm. And I can't blame I, them, for obvious reasons. And I do. I have seen some talk of people going, what should I watch... Or like, is this the same thing? So I, I can I can see why why somebody want to jump on the opportunity. Yeah, because for a while too, I forgot about this until the other day. 
the Gunbuster Diebuster double feature was on Netflix for quite really? some time too. Yes, I don't remember the exact years. I meant to track down like any mm. sort of like article or evidence for it, but I do remember seeing it on Netflix at one point. And they had it separated, kind of like how they have End of Ava, where it's separated into two episodes. They had it separated into that, because for a while, like, when they first put it up for, like, a couple days, I was like, weird, did they, like, fun, like, a crossover of the two? Gunbuster versus Diet What is this? Um, but no, it was the movie, and it, the movie by itself is... I say is, they've been taking down a lot of stuff recently. It was on High Dive at one point, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... The Netflix mecha section must be barren. Is Gurren Lagan still on Netflix? I think they took that off. Um, now, of course, it's like Ava and a lot of random Gundam. Yeah. The compilation films, Ava. And then, is Code Geass still on Netflix? Oh, hmm. I'm not sure. Last time I saw that on any streaming service, I think I saw it on Hulu mm-hmm. fairly recently. Yeah, could be uh, Honestly, when I think of Mecha on Netflix, it's that Kumo Mukuro show that was original, and then also uh, um, ID, ID, yeah, Knights of Sidonia and ID Zero too. We should start our own Mecha streaming service. <laughs> <laughs> it's Pat Labor two round the clock. Oh boy. Coop wouldn't have a brain power. Uh, yeah, brain power. <laughs> I, I want the the Russell Lashaw block. I I saw a clip that was going around of the brain power dub, and I'm just like, inject that into my veins. Oh, it's so good! I still need to buy the third DVD set, but I've been like slowly buying them up. I have everything they put out on VHS of it. I've been like saving it because they they put out Blu-rays in Japan a long time ago, and I have that through some means of getting those but uh i've been waiting to watch the dub as i get the dvd collections i still need to order the third one which is like the why they got them double discs because they couldn't it wouldn't sell well enough for single volumes i guess so mm-hmm. it's been a fun ride it's it's worth watching it, it sounds like more of a fun ride to sit through than maybe dunbine because i've heard people talking about dunbine recently and that might not be the Tamino show, and I'm staring at it on my shelf right now. <laughs> uh, Dunbine. So I've technically watched Dunbine at least twice now, but I couldn't tell you a single thing about it other than cool insect robots because I've always just had it on in the background. It's a good background. I get you. I, I couldn't no do one... like what Megan did recently and like sit down and actually watch Dunbine to watch mm. it. I uh, because it gets I, it gets really slow. That's what I've heard. I I know for at least for myself, the only reason I picked it up because hey, it's a Carl Masick streamline ADV streamline dub, so that's the only reason why. Even though Gunbuster had been out of print and inaccessible for English speakers for over a decade, which is no longer an issue thanks to Discotech, 
it has had a presence in the United States since the early 90s. Notably, Gunbuster was one of the first anime properties to receive an official, phys- uh, a official physical release in the States. It wasn't the first. That honor falls to Maddox01, courtesy of Animego, who are still around. But it was likely the second. U.S. renditions released all six episodes over three VHS tapes beginning in 1990. Each volume was priced at $35. If you ever perused the Japanimation section at your local Blockbuster, it's likely you came across a copy of Gunbuster on the shelf next to Ninja Scroll and the first Pat Labor movie. And maybe Dragon Ball Z Tree of Might as well. While researching, I stumbled upon an article from Animag, which as the name suggests, was an American print magazine dedicated to anime. It was in circulation from 1987 to 1993, A total of 15 issues were published. In the 11th issue, Carl Altstadter wrote an article about the U.S. rendition's release of Gunbuster. PMC, why don't you do the honors of reading us this very short article? Aim for the top in English. In January of 1990, U.S. renditions, a subsidiary of Books Nippon, released the first volume of Aim for the Top, Gunbuster, subtitled for the first time in English. The video, according to U.S. renditions, was modeled after the original release in conjunction with the original studio. The video features easy-to-read, computer-generated subtitles that do not interfere with the animation, but allow the English-speaking viewer to follow the dialogue and story. The video is complete in its original form, with one exception. The second science classroom sequence was deleted for editing length of time considerations. According to script editor Robert Napton, the sequence is not lost and may appear as a special bonus clip on U.S. Renditions Gunbuster Volume 2. Translations for Gunbuster were handled by Deborah Grant, Ken Iadomi, and Yuki Nakajima. Other U.S. production staff consist of Robert Napton, David Keith Riddick, technical advisor, dialogue consultant, and Upton Ress Rudmanton, U.S. production supervisor. According to Napton, intentions of the U.S. renditions production team are to complete the three-volume Gunbuster series and then possibly produce English subtitled versions of other recent OAV hits. I did say OAV. At this point, no production dates have been set for further releases, but look for announcements to be made later this year. Wonder how many of the f- those folks are still alive and working in the industry. Wow. This was straight over for three the, decades ago. Straight for their throat. How many people are still alive? <laughs> that's how that's how our fans talk about Giant Robot FM. <laughs> <laughs> they still alive. That, that PMC's got one foot in the grave. All right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, Rex, I know you've looked into this recently. Um, what was U.S. Renditions? So, as the article said, U.S. Renditions was a subsidiary of Books Nippon. And Books Nippon was a, uh, I want to say it was like 1980s to like mid-90s. They existed as a bookstore chain. I'm trying to remember, there's one, one or several in California. And I think they had a few in New York, too. A lot of... Uh, Anytime CFO pops up in any like podcast or like someone's blog or something, Books Nippon is 
almost always going to get mentioned because they were importing a lot of anime goods to uh, Otaku at the time. That's where people were buying like Roman albums and unsub VHS tapes and stuff. And in the early nineties, they were like, Hey, we should take some of these tapes that are selling like crazy and subtitle them. So they did, well, first of all, they released some Robotech uh, soundtracks on vinyl and then they licensed uh, Dangeo and Gunbuster and put them out. And uh, I want to say Dangeo, they released an episode per tape, but Gunbuster was two episodes per tape. And then in 1991, a year after they put those out, they, with uh, in association with Gainax, uh, actually, and uh, some California anime clubs, they put together... AnimeCon 91 in San Jose, which wasn't the first anime convention in the U.S., but it was one of the, like, big early ones. And actually, uh, Toshio Okada and Yoshiyuki Sadamoto were both guests, along with Torrin Smith, uh, the real guy and not the Gunbuster character. And at this no- convention... Noriko would be so they- pissed if Torrin Smith yeah. entered our world. <laughs> She'd have to play she's so much Mahjong to, to get him back. Yeah, I was going to say, she's just going to run off with Jean from uh, Nadia instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this convention, they had a uh, theatrical screening of, uh, I think, the first two or maybe three episodes of Gunbuster. It was, uh, I uncovered an advertisement for it when I was doing... Uh, my trusty newspapers.com subscription, which I still haven't canceled because it just keeps coming in handy for like weird little things that either I'm researching or friends ask me to research. Um, but I found a print ad in a uh, local San Jose magazine that was like a half page ad a couple months ago. It was advertising AnimeCon 91. And it was real. Oh, cool. That would have been so cool to go to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was right before Okada left Gynax. Yeah, I want to say, and I could be thinking of something, like, completely different, but I want to say there is some, like, behind-the-scenes drama inviting, involving, like, Gynax people at Ooh. that con, but I'd have to dig around dig around more for some stuff. But uh, Dave Merrill on uh, his blog, Let's Anime, has uh, scans of a Books Upon catalog from 1984 that I highly recommend uh, looking at. I have to check that out. I love I love when people uncover shit like this. Me too. The uh, the catalog itself, um, the pages look a lot like punk zines from the time. Like there's just a lot of like copy based uh, stuff going on. It's real good. Steven, question for you: yes. What's what's AnimeCon known as today? Is it Otakon? Nope. No. Nope. Anime Expo. Really. Mm. Mm. Humble beginnings, my dude. Humble beginnings. Humble beginnings, and then yeah, and over time becoming like a corporate mouthpiece. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They split the year after uh, that first anime con because there is a lot of uh, budgetary issues, mm. and uh, half of them went to do anime expo, and the other half did uh, anime America, which only lasted for like six or seven years interesting is that still the biggest convention in the states 
I would imagine. I, I I'm not sure though. Yeah, I was about to say because like the numbers for these things are hard to come by. Um, I know Anime Matsuri, the uh, the shitty con that we have here in Houston, that's uh, run by the Sex Pest. They uh, were fudging their numbers to make it seem like they were the biggest con in the nation for a minute, and uh, there were a lot of places that were running with that number that they were giving out and uh, not questioning it. Uh, but having gone, I, I didn't actually attend, but I've driven past the convention center and like walked through it as uh, that con was happening. And I can tell you now, there is no way that they had uh, as many people as they were, said they were having. So I think on my experts still the biggest one. Oticon though, Stephen, man, the boy, that crowd crush on Saturday that we lost each other in. Jeez. Oof. <laughs> <sighs> Now, I was looking at some photos of these tapes, and I couldn't help but notice that underneath the title, it, it reads, Directed by Hideaki Anno. And remember, this is the early 90s, not 1990 to be precise. This seems, in retrospect, to be a real inspired choice, considering this predates Evangelion by five years. Like, Anno was not a household name yet. This is the first thing he directed. I wonder if this was a request from Gainax. Like, were they trying to position Anno as an auteur director? Like, if, as a point of comparison, Giant Robo, which U.S. renditions began releasing in 1992, did not single out Imogawa on the cover, which makes me believe that this was a deliberate choice. After U.S. renditions folded, Manga Entertainment picked up the rights and reissued the tapes in 1996, which remained in print until at least the end of the decade. Neither of these releases featured dubbed audio, subs only. Do we know why this is? I've seen a lot of speculation online that Gainax lost the original music's and effects tracks, in which case an English dub would have had to be reconstructed from the ground up. The assumption was that this would be too difficult and costly. Like, how much credence should we lend to this theory? As I've heard this cited from numerous people. I mean, that's always a possibility, but then there's other cases from around that time period, like Bubblegum Crisis, where they recreated the music and effects for the dub. My theory is that simply the money wasn't there, like, and if the money was there, maybe, like, the people crunching the numbers were like, oh, hey, we won't, we can't afford to actually dub this. Um, around the time that, uh, like, dubbing... Uh, anime that was meant to be purchased for by anime enthusiasts really wasn't a thing at that point, like when they were mm. first releasing the tapes. And I don't know, because hard sales numbers for a lot of those titles, basically like everything up until like the mid-DVD era, don't really exist. But I can say as uh, someone who owns a lot of anime tapes and uh, at one point spent large portions of their free time just going and buying all the anime tapes at thrift stores and like half price books and stuff. I've never encountered a gunbuster tape ever. Like no single volumes. No, I've never seen one in real life. I think they go for quite a bit on the on secondary markets, yeah. which is saying something for an American VHS release of an anime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, yeah, on eBay, I've seen them for a lot of money, and it wasn't. In, this was like a decade ago. It wasn't until the last like two or three years the tapes started getting like actually really expensive. Like I used to 
buy them for literal pennies sometimes. So Gunbuster's always been an expensive tape. So I don't think they sold a lot of them. And the ones that were sold, I think people held on to. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at one now. All three tapes were $150. Like, Ooh. no one's bu- really no one's buying VHS tapes in 2023, except uh-uh. Rex. And Rex doesn't even have a copy of Gunbuster. And, like, my... There's a lot more people... The pandemic made people nostalgic, I guess, and people started, like, buying them in mass, mass. So there's a lot more people into the hobby of collecting VHSs now. But uh, my credence has always been don't spend more than $10 for a tape. And if you're spending like anywhere around $10, it better be something that's not on DVD or Blu-ray already because uh, tapes are very fragile. They get destroyed. And I've had lots of tapes get destroyed in the mail. Uh, They melt. There's all sorts. They get moldy and a lot of people don't know how to look for like VHS mold. So buying tapes for more than $10. I've broken that own, my own rule uh, several times over the years, but uh, yeah, generally not a good idea. I've, I've done that too. And I think the only like egregious uh, case of where I spent more than 10 bucks, like real egregious was when I picked up, I, I think it was like 35. I paid for the Macross pilot tape on Betamax so, but you don't see those very often. So I'll, I'll, I'll take it when I can get it because I'm a dork. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I'm there with you, Rex. Because I think honestly, it was like 2019 when I started. Yeah, it was no. Because I had a laser disc uh, for a while since like 2017, but didn't put them up on my wall till then. But I think it was like 2019 where I was really getting into it. So I, yeah. Well, a lot of people have been seeming to get into um, classic media collecting since then. Um, the I, on that dub too, because I don't know if it's like a thing from back to the era. Um, I, I want to say during a discotheque day stream. I know. I feel like I could be wrong on this. Um, I feel like Justin Savakis mentioned that there wasn't an MNE, like it had been lost just period not anything other than that but who knows if um he received a full story on that either because we're talking about two releases about almost 30 years apart so there's a there's a quite a bit of wiggle room in between there yeah i think this originated from jonathan clements whom i trust but i don't know the way it's been banned this fact has been bandied about in fan circles leads me to be a little suspicious Mm mm-hmm yeah, I mean, Jonathan Clemens, not disparaging Jonathan Clemens at all, but I've had to refer to the Anime Encyclopedia quite a bit over the last, like, year or two, and there, there's some, like, basic stuff wrong in that book sometimes. Like... Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, despite the surging DVD market of the early to mid-aughts, Gunbuster took a lot longer to make the jump to optical media, in America at least. On October 23, 2006, Bondi Visual USA announced that it had plans to release Gunbuster on DVD the following year as a part of its boutique Anamese label. I should mention that Bondi Visual did a special release of the R2 region Gunbuster set in America. This release featured no subtitles. It was meant for hardcore fans and was sold exclusively in Kinokuniya bookstores. 
this was not promoted as an official English release. I have not even seen pictures of this. I just mm-hmm. uh, it was mentioned on a, a Wikipedia article. Rex, did you know this thing? This was a thing. Yeah, I had heard about it. Like when I remember when it first came out, hearing about it, and I was like, "Oh, hey, cool! I should pick this up." But I didn't have a Kinokuniya yeah. near me at the time. Now, now I do. If it had been there, uh, oh god, almost twenty years ago, I would have absolutely made the track just to buy it. Mm-hmm. to Gunbuster. All right. Uh, so since, since I invoke the Anami's label, we have to we have to at least brag a bit about our anime con- uh, collections. Uh, Coop Rex, tell the good listeners out there what was this mythical Hanami's label? Like, at least for me, I feel like Hanami's uh, started as this is the we're bringing the Bandai visual super expensive DVD flair to the states with all the liner notes and nonsense that the hardcores are going to want and like amazing production value on these sets like the gunbuster set still looks good even the singles like uh the wings of rain they have great interviews in there great commentary it's like really good stuff for people who like the nuts and bolts of anime but there's also like a problem with that because i mentioned wings of rain i don't know how well they sold because gunbuster and wings of rain and we're talking about pat labor stuff that's that's been in right stuff's clearance stuff for like a decade now, and it's now just starting to go away. Yeah, I was gonna say because I remember when they first announced it, it was right when the DVD market had started to collapse for anime, mm-hmm. and I remember getting excited because they were billing it as almost like a uh, Criterion Collection style releases of anime, and then uh, like. I own quite a bit of their titles at this point, and there's even, like, the packaging has a heft to it. They feel, like, prestige. They're so nice. But like you said, like, the titles they were releasing, it's like Wings of Reed. Uh What's another one? I have Demon Prince Enma. Uh, mm-hmm. Just weird, weird whatever they could get their hands on sort of stuff because the market was starting to explode. But the extras are so nice. Like, they are mm-hmm. really premium and uh yeah i started finally buying them uh <laughs> during right stuff clearance sales because it's like oh hey i remember that label and i need stuff to uh hit the free shipping thing so i wound up getting quite a lot of their stuff i already had uh the pat labor and pat labor 2 boxes and i had them for a long time at that point but uh yeah, that's how I wound up getting a lot of things, including Wings of Rain and even Prince of uh, Die Buster. I had multiple copies of at one point. I was buying them for people's gifts a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I picked up the Gunbuster, oh, the Die Buster, also known as Gunbuster 2 DVDs, um, when they were for three bucks each. I, the Pat Labor 2 sets are immaculate. They're fantastic. I have a copy of Royal Space Force and Blue Ram DVD. And I'm, I might pick up, um, because of future content, Igloo, uh, Molsu Gundam Igloo in the future, which I just realized got a set as well. Yeah, there's also uh, the price books I go to regularly is had a copy of uh, the release of Akira for 
a few weeks now, and I am probably after my Gunbuster the movie experience that I'll detail uh, more in depth in a little bit. Um, probably going to go buy that this week uh, just mm-hmm. to see what the uh, audio video stuff is like on it because it's cheap enough to where I could be like, oh hey, yeah, I'm just going to buy this. And I have uh, Funimation's Blu-ray and their 4K of it, and I have not really been impressed with either of them. I would go so far as to say uh, Funimation's uh, Kira 4K is the worst looking blu-ray i own period Ooh. which is a damn shame considering it's fucking akira yeah you know it would be kind of cool hey can't beat that it would be kind of cool if criterion be like you know we did that laser disc so many years ago let's do a blu-ray huh huh that's a criterion worthy movie i think there's history there yeah, and I believe there's extras on that disc that haven't resurfaced since then. Mm-hmm. Please, John Criterion. Kojima was in the closet today. Mm-hmm. He sure was. I wonder what he picked up. Oh, I'm looking forward to that video. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, <laughs> Kojima going to the closet and making a beeline for, like, the early part, and then he pulls out the Armageddon double. Yeah, that's what he would pick out. <laughs> <laughs> What's the other Michael Bay Criterion cut? It's uh, Armageddon. There's another one. Uh, the Rock. The Rock. He'd be, yeah. There okay, that's 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 the Bay, other Bay movie that should be in Criterion. The Rock rules. Mm-hmm. So the Anamese label was launched by Bondi Visual USA in 2006 with the deluxe DVD releases of Pat Labor the Movie 1 and 2. The label name is a reference to Royal Space Force, which itself received a spiffy DVD-Blu-ray combo release. Sadly, this DVD line came to an abbreviated end when the company shut down in 2008. Bondi Visual was absorbed into Bondi Entertainment, which ended up closing four years later in 2012. Bondi Visual went all out marketing Gunbuster in the States. As was the norm, they launched a Gunbuster website. Kudos to whoever wrote the copy here because they, they you could just the enthusiasm it, it drips the the their word choice here. PMC, could you do the honors one more time? Thank you for your patience. Oh, well, that's your, the title is Gunbuster launch date announced two exclamation marks. Thank you for your patience. Also two exclamation marks. With hard work and guts, this official site is now open. Gunbuster is now ready to land in the U.S. Check out press release hyperlink and start developing your muscles by push-ups and jumping ropes in order to rush to the store at light speed or control the computer mouse skillfully on the DVD release day. Two exclamation marks. We are planning to carry out various contests and add more and more information to this site. So bookmark this Gunbuster site now and come back often, winky face. (laughs) Gotta bookmark the site. So I just noticed there is a typo in that last Gunbuster. So mark, so bookmark this Gunbutter site (laughs) and come back often. Yeah, the (laughs) Gunbutter. Gun butter. <laughs> Pass the, the gun butter, mom. 
Now, furthermore, they also maintained a MySpace community dedicated to, to the Anami's label. As their press release reads, and I quote, the site contains information and images from Bandai Visual's upcoming release of the classic anime series Gunbuster, as well as past Anami's titles, Pat Labor the Movie and Pat Labor 2 the Movie. Visitors to the site will also be able to view a special video clip from the newly remastered version of Gunbuster, as well as download wallpapers, buddy icons, and MySpace skins from Anami's titles. The site will be updated periodically. End quote. I remember when I was doing history for a uh, on the old pod, a Code Geass history episode, and I found a MySpace community, which I read each post of. I tracked the community for like four years to you know pick up any news nuggets that I could. Um, but there was an official Code Geass MySpace page, and they even made a MySpace page for Lelouch. Amazing. That's beautiful. I miss this stuff so much. So much personality. I remember every time like there'd be a new Atlas USA release, Atlas USA would make a bespoke website for each of those really obscure Japanese games that they were bringing over. Man, I I miss that era of like it's 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 clunky in in function at times, but I I do miss that old era of oh, I just figured out how to do some rough HTML and I have this crazy background on my MySpace page. Like there, there is a, there is a, there is such a charm to that, that I miss and personality, um, which also makes me go, I should really play that Hypnospace Outlaw game the kids are on. Yeah. Yeah. It's real good. I've been playing, uh, the pseudo sequel, uh, Slayer's X. Oh, yes. Real good. It, it, it does your uh, S blade have a hack blood charge? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I got to. I played the part uh, the other night where you get the uh, the fire the Kamehameha like sort of thing, and you just like start flying when you use it. It's so this is an incredible game, amazing. But that's not all. Fans who purchased the DVD could send away for a free Gunbuster trailer manga card with art by Mikimoto. All they had to do was fill out and mail back an insert card that came with the DVD. But they would have had to have acted quickly. The offer ended after just five weeks. Those fuckers. Five weeks. It's no time at all. I wonder if there's a warehouse somewhere with just a stack of these cards. Left over and nobody knows it's there. <laughs> I have a feeling they printed just like 10 of them. Probably. I wouldn't doubt that. Gunbuster released on DVD in America on February 20th, 2007. According to an ANN article, quote, The $64.99 three-disc set includes all six episodes, 30 minutes of bonus material, remastered video, newly translated subtitles, and a 24-page color booklet, all packaged in an original deluxe art box imported from Japan. End quote. I also, it's a news article on ANN. I went to the forum post. It is just people complaining about the $64 price tag, which admittedly is high. Mm. yeah and also too i'm thinking about it now because i never wound up buying that set back in the day even though it was something that i totally would have bought 
I don't think I actually ever saw it for just sixty four ninety nine because I definitely would have bought it if I remember correctly. My local fry is where I was buying anime at the time. Um, had it for double that. Well, yeah, speaking like, of those fuckers, that would be fries. Yeah. Like all the Anamese releases, this went out of print soon after the label was discontinued. As a result, it commands some incredibly high prices online. I imagine it's going for over 200 now. Usually it's between 150 and 300 Now, Coop, you, oh, Rex. I was going to say, so I have been slowly watching um, copies of the DVD box set uh, wind up in thrift stores and half-price books and stuff over mm. the last month or so as people get the Blu-ray. It is starting to go down a little bit in price. Uh, my local half price books has a few for ninety dollars. Ooh, that might. So I... I'm gonna wait a little longer because the Blu-ray has only been out for it's only been like a month or so, right? Mm-hmm. At this point, I'm gonna wait and see how it is a couple more months down the line as more of these start going onto the secondary market and. I'm thinking once they go down to like 60, 70, I'll probably buy it. I'm always envious of my guests that we have on, like you, Rex, and Ethan, who just have like the dankest secondhand stores by you. Yeah, Ethan is, and I need to go to St. Louis. One, to see Ethan, that's one thing, but also to go into Anime Grill, Anime Grill to see the nonsense he's been able to pull out of there. Like, Oof, duh. I, I am jealous of that Ethan Hawker. Yes, sirree. Me too. His hauls are always like... Every time I think I get a good haul, uh, Ethan always like pops up with something that's just like jaw-droppingly mm. nuts. Meanwhile, PMC have our second-hand shop that, like I mentioned before we started the call, a copy of <laughs> Little Nicky on Game Boy Color for $249. Oh, you didn't say it was oh oh my that's the wages of sin folks <laughs> it's in good condition as all the ends i'm looking at a photo of it now because i wanted to confirm yeah it's like fully complete in box which you know for those flimsy game boy color boxes is actually kind of yeah. impressive yeah two hundred dollars though like i i said good things about it before we started recording the episode like i don't think it's a bad game but uh, it, it is not a $200 game. Mm-hmm. Maybe Tech will release <laughs> a little <laughs> Nicky on Blu-ray and the prices will start to go down. <laughs> now, Coop, you own a copy of this. Uh, give us the rundown. Did you make a deal with the devil? When and where did you pick this up? So I was at the right place at the right time as these things happened to turn out. Uh, you guys are gonna hate me when I say how much I got it for. Um, thirty, like thirty-four, thirty-five bucks back in two thousand eleven. Um, because at the time it was, uh, I ordered it. So back in it was two thousand eleven, uh, going finishing up two thousand twelve, my last year of high school, um, and I was in AP English class. And the teacher's like, you gotta do a comparative analysis. Uh, two books, 14 pages. I got to seven, I think. 
So, you know, that was something. That was something. I also learned that night, uh, right before, because I was almost done at midnight and then had to spend the rest of the night because I lost everything. Save and save often, folks. Please do. Oh, boy. Uh, but, anyways, so to prepare, I went on Amazon, ordered a couple books, and I was like, let's sneak this other thing on here because I've been told for years at this point, uh, hanging around Transformers Circles, Hey, that Gunbuster is real good. You should check that out. And hey, it was on Amazon for like 34, 35 bucks. Threw it on there. I, I literally thought it was 50 for the longest time until I just checked it again. It must have been 50 bucks with the books. But yeah, I got that copy and have held on to it for dear life since then because I've seen it at shows going for two to three hundred dollars. And I'm like, ah. And also, for me, it's it's popping that in and watching it all in one go in one night in my high school bedroom on a, one of those cool tube TVs that also has a VHS built into it was like one of those magical experiences I can't rarely been able to recreate in my life or have with anything else for the most part. So it's one of those things I never see myself getting rid of and given that there's a lot of good stuff in there like the booklet and the extra short it's not something i'm going to be getting rid of anytime soon it's still i will say it's it's held up very nicely considering its age uh much nicer than some of my other old stuff i will say now bondi visual usa had one more gunbuster related release up its sleeve before its untimely demise the publisher released the Gunbuster vs. Diebuster Aim for the Top compilation films on DVD and Blu-ray in America. Fans had the option of buying each film separately or in a combined deluxe edition. The latter, a three-disc box set, retailed for $99 and 98, not 99, but 98 cents. <laughs> it came with Gunbuster the movie, Diebuster the movie, a third bonus disc filled with extras, and two eight-page collector booklets. Rex, you mentioned you have the standard edition releases, right? Yes. So this was another one. Uh, they weren't on uh, clearance as long as Wings of Rain or uh, the Die Buster singles, but they were on the right stuff clearance for quite a while. And I bought them when they had further marked down clearance stuff. So I think I got them for seven bucks a piece back in, I want to say, 2015. Um, uh, it might have been 2017. I don't remember because I've had lots of right stuff weird purchases over the years. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, they have a really nice heft to them. Um, the Die Buster one I opened, like just I had it was still shrink wrap, and I opened it for the first time this past weekend. Gunbuster and I, I had already watched, but when I was watching it for the first time. I had never seen Die Buster, period, so I watched the DVD singles instead of the movie, because I figured that would be the better way to go. Um, my hot Gunbuster, the movie take that I've uh, teased multiple times in this episode at this point, and God, no offense to any uh, discotheque people, because I know how much work was put into that disc and everything, but I actually do like the way uh, the uh, Bandai Visual Gunbuster, the movie Blu-ray, looks more than the discotheque uh, Gunbuster 
OVA DVD. And I did when I was first going through the Gunbuster, the movie Blu-ray and had that thought. I was like, wait, I have to make sure. So I ripped both of them to my Mac and was doing like side by side comparisons this afternoon when we got back from uh, Father's Day lunch. And yeah, the the movie Blu-ray, they didn't really clean up anything. There's a lot of judder. There's more film grain. There's a lot of scratches and little imperfections that just weren't cleaned up at all. And I feel like it makes it more cinematic, specifically during the episode six parts that were meant to be big cinematic experiences. And it just, I don't know, it feels better to watch. I wish that uh, there is an uncleaned up version of the OVA that I could watch. But also, too, for the record, I know my opinion is not going to be the opinion of most people. My favorite anime Blu-ray release is Funimation's Speed Racer Blu-ray that looks like they took the prints and, like, beat them with a hammer in places. So... I have to uh, I have to go back to my Sentai Blu-ray to see uh, how it holds up, or how it compares. Yeah, I was gonna say, I'm real curious about that one, because uh, I've never watched that one, and I know Sentai, a lot of their older re-releases, I'm not a huge fan of, because they do in my opinion, too much uh, cleanup mm. on stuff. Um, so I'm real curious to see how their Gunbuster Blu-ray turned out. But uh, unfortunately, the Bondi Visual Gunbuster and Diebuster discs, are you can't get them for $7 anymore. The cheapest I saw Gunbuster the movie was uh, $40 on eBay earlier. So <laughs> That's how much it used to go at retail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, too, if you bought the special edition, you got a little Noriko figure. Or maybe you had to mail in for it, but that was also advertised. Yeah. I'm real curious about that third bonus disc with the extras on it, too. Because the Bandai Visual uh, single discs, all they have are commentaries from uh, voice talent. I think it's... uh, Diebusters main VAs uh, commentating on Gunbuster and then Gunbusters VAs commentating on Diebuster. Oh, which reminds me to uh, that commentary track, the Gunbuster VAs on Diebuster, because Diebuster the movie has never been re-released. So not only is that commentary track not available anywhere else, it's also right now the only place that you can watch Diebuster in HD at all, because Discotech hasn't put Diebuster out on anything, but... uh, DVD, and there are streams. I think it's on Crunchyroll, Diebuster, the OVA, but those streams are in standard definition, too. So, And it looks really nice in HD quality. Yeah, like I said, fingers crossed that we get that announcement soon. Mm-hmm. I feel like they have to at this point. Only a few months after Bondi Visual USA closed up shop, the recession, one of the many factors more like a symptom, really, that led to the shrinking of the American anime industry, kicked into gear. And soon thereafter, Gunbuster went out of print and disappeared, as I remember it, from fandom conversation outside of enthusiast circles. Gunbuster would remain completely out of print until 2016, when Sentai released a Blu-ray of Gunbuster the movie, 
While it lacks the incredible packaging of the Bandai visual releases, it does feature some neat extras, such as cast and crew interviews that were not on the Anami's release. Gotcha. Because I... Uh, Shouts to Nick at Nick Nick Goose on Twitter because him and I were doing a little bit of science because he actually picked up the disc and as apparently from what I'm aware of the the only commentary on there was just the Die Buster uh, cast from the Hanami's release which doesn't make sense kind of if it's a standalone release like this without that like with the Gatai packaging that makes sense but otherwise it just doesn't um but I, I, that, I'm, I'm actually more. If there's additional stuff on there, I'm, I am curious to see, maybe pick that uh, up if it's at a price I'd like to pay and take a look and see if there's anything on there. I didn't watch I, that. Uh, I didn't watch that commentary all the way through. Like I dig voice actors and the things they have to say. But I got like ten minutes in, and there was nothing really worthwhile about the stuff they were saying. Um, mm-hmm. The anecdotes weren't even like particularly targeted about like the production, and I was just like, eh, whatever. Mm-hmm. I that bumps I will... me out. I'm a commentary head. I I, I, I did com. I love commentaries. commentaries. The uh, I'd, I'd recommend on the on the note of commentaries if you get the chance. There's like three or four commentaries on Scott Pilgrim versus the World, and they're all great. I love those commentary tracks because there's especially one with the main cast and just in the middle, Brandon Routh comes in in the middle of the movie into the recording session with tacos and they're just kind of hanging out. It's like, hey, we're checking out this movie. Oh, yeah? Let me throw on, get in front of the mic, put on a headset. I got tacos. Let's watch this movie. <laughs> DVD commentaries really were podcasts before podcasts were a thing. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite ones is uh, Joel Schumacher's commentary for Batman Forever, where throughout the movie he just gets progressively more and more drunk and angry (laughs) at the movie and goes into great detail about how Warner Brothers uh, butchered his movie. And the fact that they actually, like, not only allowed that to release back on, I think that was originally made for the Laserdisc, but it's still on modern reprints of Batman Forever in like new formats. Like I bought the, I had first heard about it. Oh man, probably back in high school when it was on the DVD. I bought the Batman Forever Blu-ray in twenty thirteen or fourteen just to finally hear that commentary, and I believe it's on the new four K discs Ooh. of it too. Um, that also makes me think too. Talking about good commentaries, uh. Y'all should check out the commentary for Big Trouble in Little China because it's 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 less about the movie and it's more just John Carpenter and Kurt Russell catching up while the movie's going on. It's it's so good. I I love it. Those are the best commentaries. I remember I voraciously consumed the Simpsons episode DVD commentaries. I found those fascinating as a kid. Yeah, I actually have a project on the books uh, that I've been slowly working on involving those. Mm. That uh, I don't know if I'm going to get to, because my backlog's so thick, I don't know if I'm even going to get to it by the end of the year, but uh, I have another similar project involving Ava that I uh, should have been in the polishing phases a long time ago, but I just backburnered it because I got burnt out on Ava's stuff. Mm. But uh, yeah, one day. 
but gun bust oh oh those are great i, I would listen to those when i had when I, when I was out sick from school those and the lord of the rings commentaries that was my jam but Gunbuster the movie wasn't Gunbuster the OVA. It wasn't the complete series. Fans wanted an official release of all six episodes, but few doubted it would ever happen. So, imagine our collective surprise when Discotech Media, during their Otakon 2021 panel, announced that they got the rights to Gunbuster. Do you all remember what it was like being on anime Twitter that night? Coop, you weren't you didn't go to Otakon 2021, did you? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. But I do remember that night pretty well. So I go, I'm out and about. I'm just looking at looking through Twitter, and I go to a bar um, to pick up some dinner. And I go sit outside with a drink because um, it's a nice summer day. And I swear to God, I looked like a crazy person because I looked at my phone and I started screaming and dancing and jumping in like the middle of the small town street with like uh, on the main street of the small town and i'm like afterwards i'm like i probably look like a psychopath to people right now but okay i'm getting gun buster <laughs> yeah, yeah my story was similar to that i was uh out with a friend actually who uh worked at Sentai, <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, Discotech just got Gunbuster, and I'm like freaking out and stuff, and she was like, I thought we had that, and I was like, no, y'all have the movie, this is the OVA, ah! <laughs> I was like, I my shit in some bar in like downtown Houston. This is one of the, on the old account, this is one of the first tweets that we had that kind of went viral. I remember it was the first tweet, <laughs> the first time I retweeted something from our main accounts from the Daily Mecca account, and since then it's been all downhill of me just promoting our own, our own shit um but yeah it was it was like celebration in the streets of twitter that night mm-hmm. now if you go back if you think back to that panel mike tool explicitly stated that gunbuster was a long ways off <laughs> and boy they weren't kidding but in the intervening two years the publisher was hard at work collecting extras finalizing artwork and most importantly partnering with Sound Cadence Studios, an audio company with studios in L.A. and Addison, Texas, to produce a brand new dub. When casting these roles, Marissa Lenti and Natalie Van Sistine, ADR director and lead engineer, respectively, they had two goals. Number one, they wanted a mix of veterans and unknowns to spotlight new talent. And two, Given the intergalactic dimensions of this conflict, they wanted a diverse cast. Now, PMC, I know you did some research here. Why don't you give us a rundown of some of these roles? Yeah, so uh, you know, it, it is absolutely what they what they said it would be, which was a, a mix of veterans and uh, newcomers uh, to highlight some of our, I guess, our, our big our big roles or maybe our big four. Noriko is a relative newcomer. Cayenne uh, Trula King. Um, she's done a few other things, um, you know, some voice work on video games, uh, a few anime roles here, but I think this is kind of the, her, her big thing. Um, uh, Amano is voiced by Melissa Sternenberg, who is a little more known, has been around for a bit, uh, I think is one of the major supporting characters in Ruby. Uh, Ruby has like weird crediting issues where uh, some mm-hmm. sites just don't tell you anything about it. Uh, but I think that was definitely the case. And she's also been in some video games like Regalia, Money Marks, uh, Edge of Eternity. 
other other characters of interest uh coach oda should be very familiar to uh mecha fans if you are actively consuming mecha dubs in 2023 because oda is voiced by bradley gareth who is ghoul jedrick in the g-witch dub so that's oh yeah so that's a that's a pretty straightforward connection right there it's going to be pretty relevant to to mech fans um Gareth's done a, done a lot of things. You know, he's been very, very active the past like ten years or so. Uh, young Freud is voiced by Alexander Yadashak, who um, seems relatively new, but is like additional voices in Crisis Core Union has done some Pokemon stuff. Uh, you know, so certainly very active. And then there's like some some veterans that I wanna I wanna highlight uh, in other roles. Um, Bill Jenkins, who is the captain, has done a lot of things. One role that's kind of funny is Manfred von Karma in the Phoenix Wright anime. That <laughs> uh, was a nice oh. little connection. Uh, probably, I, I feel like based on my very cursory research, the most senior person is actually Kimiko's uh, actress, uh, Lisa Ortiz, who has uh, who is like the the character for some uh, pretty important roles. Um has been Amy Rose in many Sonic things, has been Lena Inverse in many Slayers things, was Michelle Aznable in The Origin, uh, Maite in many Galaxy Express things, uh, many roles in the original Pokemon show, including Sabrina the Gym Leader. Uh, and I, I think I've read that Lisa Ortiz, as Kimiko, does Kimiko at various ages uh, and does it pretty well from what I understand. So I'm not surprised that... It seems like Lisa has a ton of range, and, and you know, Kimiko is a role that you can really bring that to. Uh, two more small notes: uh, Rico, the uh, you know the, the rival character that we referenced earlier, uh, that actress uh, was the dub voice for Wendy from the prologue, Wendy Olent, the the, the blonde and, and red haired character, uh, and then the um, Smith Torrens uh, English voice actor Ernesto Jason Liebrecht. Uh, has like a ton of roles, but the one that really jumped out to me if we're talking about a blonde tough guy was Abel from Street Fighter Four. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, again, a mix of veterans and newcomers. Uh, certainly, some voices that I think people will recognize. Uh, also, like everyone has a voice credit in Smite at this point. I don't know if that's like just general like global saturation or what. But like everyone here has a voice credit in Smite. I don't, I don't know that game, and I'm afraid to ask. <laughs> I, I will point to out uh, point out two on the G Witch connections. Um, Natalie Van Sistine. Hey, she uh, plays everybody's favorite tomato girl's wife in G Witch as well. Oh, oh right. I thought that name looked familiar. Yeah. That, yeah. Okay. There you go. Hmm. Um, also, too, uh, Christina V is in the Gunbuster dub. She played Masato in the Netflix Ava mm. dub. And also has done a lot of stuff for WayForward. I believe she's saying that all of the songs for River City Girls, but I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm. I am so hesitant to check out the Netflix Evangelion dub. I'm so partial to the ADV dub. So I have watched it three times now. Um, It's not bad. I would go so far as to say Netflix Shinji I like more than ADV Shinji. Mm -hmm. But the other roles, 
in the writing. The writing is what kind of ruins it for me mm-hmm. because uh, they made them use Gainax's uh, official translations of very specific terms, which comes off really stilted. And the whole the whole thing in general comes off as really stilted. It reminds me in places of the Garzy's Wing dub, how they have to just rapid fire mm-hmm. through complex terms and stuff very quickly instead of the ADV dub where they rewrote a lot of things to actually work with the English language. And it was really weird and off-putting too because uh, almost, uh, not quite right after that, but just a couple years later, uh, G-Kids did the uh, Thrice Upon a Time Shaneba dub with the original cast. Mm. So it just kind of feels pointless. I wasn't going to buy the Blu-rays until they did the, uh, unless they had the ADB dub, and I wound up getting the Blu-rays that had the ADB dub on a right stuff sale last year. Yeah, it was around Christmas. I'm glad I have those. But yeah, Netflix dub's real weird. I would not recommend it. The only reason I did wind up watching... First time I watched it was for comparison, and the second and third times is because... Uh, I went over to people's houses who were already watching it, so I was watching it on the background. Mm-hmm. This kind of happened. I didn't yeah. knowingly watch it three times. I, I'm i there with you that Shinji is very much... I said that's good, but that's all in the back of Casey Mungilo's performance as Shinji for the most part, because they're fantastic. They're, like, amazing. Um, I As somebody who's only heard clips of the ADV stuff... Uh, I'm not a big fan of that of that portrayal of Shinji, especially when I listen to it, because it sounds kind of Shaggy-esque to me. I don't mean to be a dick about it, but that's just kind of how it sounds to me. Um, but while we're talking cartoons, I, I will have to say, a great performance uh, by uh, Ernesto Jason Liebrick as Smith. Um but there were a couple times I was listening to it. I heard the Texas draw, and I thought of Boomhauer from The King of the Hill a couple times. Yeah. And I mean that lovingly. Lovingly. <laughs> so being from Texas, I always hear people complain about the Texas accent in ADV dubs. And I never have noticed it. And I have tried specifically to look for it. Because I've heard people say ADV dubs are ruined for them because of the Texas accent. And there's been a few cases where I've been like, oh yeah, that is very clearly someone from Texas, but it's just so normal to me because I hear it every day. I I can't be a good judge of this, but people tell me all the time that I don't have the Texas accent. So I think it only comes out sometimes when I force it. That was me trying to force it. It didn't even work. So I, I had this discussion. It's training though. So mm-hmm. I had this same discussion with uh, Maddie the other day, and they can only really force it when the Texas is coming out. Otherwise, they're 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 very hella and very Californian. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Apologies to our listeners for our tri-state drawl, PMC and I, native Jersey accents. After many months of waiting. And a last-minute delay, Gunbuster finally released on Blu-ray in America on May 30th, 2023. The final release includes a new dub, 
including the initial batch of, well, I guess the initial two batches of science lessons, a brand new subtitle translation, and a bunch of extras. All in all, it's an outstanding package. However, some things got cut in the final release. Rex, you pointed this out on Twitter. Yeah, so initially they, like, they had been hyping it as one of their Desert Island discs. Or not Desert Island, uh, I forgot sink. the term. Yeah, kitchen sink. Kitchen sink discs uh, with a bunch of stuff packed in. And it's missing, of the things they promised, it's missing interviews. It's missing whatever more was supposed to be. And the weirdest omission to me is the Jonathan Clements commentaries that they were hyping up quite a bit leading up to the disc's release. And Jonathan Clements is in the credits, like the English credits that pop up after you finish uh, episode six. He is listed and credited with commentaries on there. So it must have been a very late removal of those commentaries. They're out there somewhere. They have to be. And everyone from Discotech has been very silent about it. Discotech, the company, has been very silent about it, which is very... I mean, I wouldn't say it's out of character for them to not acknowledge that uh, they weren't there, but it is very out of character for them to hype this stuff up as big as they did and then not deliver. So I'm really curious as to what happened. I'm not curious enough to pester Discotech employees about it. I'm very surprised that I haven't seen that happen at all yet. But uh, I'm willing to bet it was some like licensor at the last minute didn't approve the extras or something, which makes me sad. Yeah, like the the ten people left in the Gynax offices probably gave it the veto at the last minute. Yeah. <laughs> oh wait, no wait. Would it be would it be would it be Gynax or would it be Kara? Uh, Kara, from what I understand. Um, I don't think they have that much to do. Well, I don't think they have that much to do with the licensing because there's other companies that are uh, the holding company trigger and King records and Kodokawa, I would feel like would have more say mm-hmm. than Kara. But if I remember correctly from how this holding company was formed, Hideaki Anno kind of set the whole thing up to manage the branding, but then there's also Bandai is still involved True. with the government yeah. license too, if I'm not mistaken. So any one of them could have been like, nope, not having this. Yeah, that's a shame. The only the silver lining here is I didn't have to <laughs> six Clements uh commentaries like pausing to write down significant facts would have been an extra ten hours of work roughly. So I'm glad for that reason. But also, um, for from a scholarship perspective, I really do wish they were included. And hopefully, even though I know it's not going to happen, hopefully they'll resurface in some way. I I mean, I don't want to speculate too much, but I have a feeling at some point they're going to do a 4K of this. Mm. They'll probably do a 4K of Project ACO too, because the, they put an incredible amount of work in the, the remaster. I would be shocked if they didn't do that and I wouldn't be surprised to see those commentaries resurface for that one day but never know here's hoping 
And and with that, this break, we have broken another record on Giant Robot FM. We have once again recorded our second longest podcast. Congratulations, <laughs> you all. It's PMC is crying into a pillow has, has, after the, realizing he has to edit this. Coop, Rex, thank you so much for joining us. Any final thoughts? I mean, you'll be with us in the future in a few weeks. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to talk about episode two. I like that episode a lot. I like Gunbuster a lot. I uh, am very jealous of the people who got to watch it for the first time with this release because it's a, it's a good one. Um, and I'm excited for the listeners who... If there are any listeners who aren't familiar with Gunbuster uh, yet, I'm excited to have helped uh, out their journey into Gunbuster and early Gynax alongside y'all. It's been a fun time. Yes, like so, almost what, seven plus hours of podcasting on the founding of Gynax. <laughs> yeah, same. It's uh, been a blast just talking about the works of these people that I really love, and especially Gunbuster. Uh, the most because it means a lot to me and I'm excited that more people can go and see it because I even when this Blu-ray was announced I had good friends of mine who were not really super into anime like they occasionally watch the big show every so often kind of like the I don't mean this in a pejorative way but kind of like the person who has a game system but they only buy Madden and Call of Duty every so often and I told them about Gunbuster like okay I gotta go buy that day one so I'm excited for more and more people to be able to see this awesome thing and that we were able to come together and fill in some of the extra information. And also it was a great excuse for me to properly finally, outside of just looking through um, the uh, the pretty pictures, go through that Gunbuster Complete and see and read those interviews because there's so much good stuff in there. That makes me love Gunbuster, and also how it how it fits in the anime landscape along the works that I was inspired by, and the works that would it would go on to inspire. Yeah, and we'll, we'll try to drop as many of those factoids into our individual episode coverage going along. That book is full of neat facts about like specific mechanical designs and other production info that wouldn't really work in a history episode. Mm-hmm. And also, if you listen to this episode and want more, there's like a secret sequel episode to this, which is our Zardion episode. There's a bunch of history information that picks up right where we left off, talking about Gynax's work as a video game developer and a video game contractor. So, you know, whenever we get around to covering Ava, this will be like our bridge episode that connects part two to a theoretical part three. I'm so excited for uh, whenever that happens. Cause, uh, I will say it's probably sooner rather than later. And I, 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 I sh- I, I'm in fear of just planning out the history episode for that. History episodes. It's, so. it's going to be a rabbit hole makes this one mm-hmm. look late. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Like. I'm still, like, I've been heavily researched. Like I mentioned earlier, I got burnt out on Ava for a while because I was doing so much research on it. I'm still uncovering new things regularly. So you I haven't even say gotten around to interviewing people that worked on it yet. And I plan to do that at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. So you could say that's the cruel scholar's thesis? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Poop, you should have saved that for our stinger. Oh, boy. <laughs> Real quick, before PMC uh, jumps into promos, Coop, hit us with some promotions. Yeah, you can find me in all my nonsense at Rider Strike on Twitter. I also, every once in a while, it's been a little while, do this little podcast called Dude, You Remember Macross with my good friend Dylan Gregory. We've gone through all of the Macross series and we're like in the middle of Delta and we'll get back to it when we get to it. But it's a fun ride. It's how I met all these yahoos. So go check it out. Uh, Anchor.fm slash Dude, You Remember. And then, uh, if you want to see anything else I'm up to, all my stuff can be found at riderstrike.card.co, baby. Frax hit us with some sweet-ass promos. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at R-N-A-B-O-U-R-S-I-I-I. Um, my website is beyondelectricsheep.com. I teased this last episode. Should be finally dropping uh, within a day or two of this episode. Mm. Whether that is uh, Monday or Tuesday or Thursday or Friday, we'll find out. But uh, I'm revamping all my Evangelion games coverage, and I should have uh, some of that drop in this week, provided I finish subtitling the videos that I need to subtitle. So uh, keep an eye on that. Um, I write a lot about uh, anime video games. I got a lot of that coming the next couple months. You got you got we got to force PMC to speed run the Evangelion typing games. <laughs> yes. I, yes. Saying, I think people I already speed run the Eva 64 game. That's probably the one that's got the most attention. Mm-hmm. Oh, the fighting game. But is there a speed run world record yet for stripping instrumentality project? That is the real question. That's yeah. Mhm. I I I opened that during a recorder. It's like I got to I got to erase my <laughs> search history. You know. <laughs> Hey, uh, PMC, you can sip up those world records. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> well, if you enjoyed this, if, if you were somehow, <laughs> if you somehow made it here to the end of this, uh, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you want to support what we do, it's always welcome to have reviews on the main feed. Uh, always helps us get the word out about what we do. We're an independent podcast. Following this, there will be episodes covering each episode of the OVA individually, followed by episodes on some of the extra material, regards to you know the literature material, the, uh, the video games, etc. Look forward to all of those. Uh, we are still wrapping up Radio Free Mercury, which is our coverage of Gundam The Witch for Mercury on a week-to-week basis as it airs. Uh, that that happens as it airs. I don't know their broadcasting schedule. I don't know if they know their broadcasting schedule. But if you're interested in that, you can listen to the first 13 episodes in the main feed. And if you want to listen to more as it airs week to week, then you can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash giantrobotfm. Similarly, we also have a series called Simulator where we do give Mecha video games the same treatment that we give to Mecha anime. Uh you can listen to some of those episodes for on the main feed, such as the Armored Core episodes or the Front Mission episodes. We're currently working, as uh, Stephen mentioned during the episode, on an Assault, Suit can, Assault Suits Valken episode. So that'll be a lot of fun. And of course, there also will be a Gunbuster episode later on. So you know, please, please, please look forward to those. I want to give credit to Dwarf S for our graphic design, credit to Shkin for our art, and credit to Fretzel, hashtag ban Fretzel, for the music that we use. Coop, what do you got for us? I gotta know, what what does uh, Victor of Ireland have to say about this? 